hello, my name is Meryl Jones-Williams, and I will be having a conversation with Nathan Lovett for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is Monday, November 27th in the year 2023, and this is being recorded on Zoom. I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn, New York, and Nathan, you are in Stamford, Connecticut? Correct. You're in Stamford, Connecticut. Okay, nice. Okay. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about just where you grew up and where you were born and anything you'd like to share about that? Sure. Uh, so I was born in Long Island, New York, but my family and I only lived there for about two years. And well, I only lived there for about two years. And then we moved to South Florida. So I actually grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which um, right now is not exactly the best trans state, trans positive state to live in. Uh, but that's where I grew up. So I lived there for you know, about 18 years. I went to high school. I went to all my uh, elementary school, middle school, and high school there. And um, yeah, that, that was my my growing up area. I've moved a lot since then. I've been to a lot of different cities since then, but that's where I've had like my um, kind of adolescent childhood high school experience. Wow. Um, and you left Florida when you were how old? So I left Florida for for undergraduate college. I went to Emory in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and that's where I did I did a, a program in women's studies and psychology. I feel like women's studies at that time and maybe still now today, which is like where all the queer people ended up. <laughs> the whole school is like every queer and trans, even if not, I wasn't out. I wasn't aware of being trans at that time. That came a little later, but that sort of um, kind of helped open me up to seeing a lot of queer and trans people. There was like a, a queer literature class at Emory that every queer identified person took. And it became less like, I can't tell you a single thing we read in that class. It just became a way to connect with each other, um, you know, form a lot of different relationships, intimate and friendship relationships. And uh, and also the Indigo Girls uh, were in Atlanta and went to Emory. So that was like part of my, because at that time I identified as a lesbian. So I was like really drawn to the school that the Indigo Girls were a part of. <laughs> that may have been the only reason I went there. I don't think I knew anything about like the academics. All I knew was the Indigo Girls were in Atlanta and they were connected to this college. And so that's what, what drew me there. And I did end up getting to see them a lot, which was exciting. Uh, so I did... Uh, four years in Atlanta and then when I graduated which is so I'm 45 now so I graduated um, high school in 1996 and I graduated college in 2000 then I went to the Bay Area I lived in Oakland and Berkeley um, because I really wanted to live but I think I just wanted to get as far away from like Florida as possible so I went to the opposite side of the coast and of the country and then I um, did a lot of different organizing there, which I'm, you know, happy to talk more about, but a lot of like queer youth organizing, social justice, anti-racist organizing, and that's where I came out as trans was being in the Bay, just being around a lot of other trans people, meeting the first trans people. I think that there were a lot of trans people in Atlanta, but I just didn't know, or we all didn't know at the time. We didn't necessarily have words for it, um, so that's like, you know, college time was 90, 1996 to 2000, so 
we didn't see a lot of trans representation at that time. Not to say it wasn't there, but we didn't see a lot of it, especially in the South. Um, and so the Bay Area, it was the Bay Area or New York City, which I ended up in New York City, but I just felt like those were the places to be around, you know, queer and trans people. So when I went to the Bay, then I went to Boston. Um, it was like two years in the Bay, then I went to Boston to do a, a master's in gender and cultural studies because I thought that I was going to be a professor in gender and cultural studies because that was like the sort of queer and trans world. Um, and then I went, I did not like Boston so much. It felt like a tough place to live in. And then I went to New York City. So in 2005, I went to New York City. And I feel like that's when I got really involved in healthcare organizing and I ended up going to nursing school. And um, anyway, I can talk more about that, but that's like where I ended up for the bulk of my life. Like last 20 years, I was in New York City, only recently in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, but New York City is kind of where everything sort of happened for me, like getting connected to trans health, being a part of Cal and Lord, which is an LGBT, LGBT health center in in uh, New York City, and really getting involved in healthcare specifically. Like before that was kind of organizing social justice work. And then was like, hey, all of us experienced all these barriers to healthcare. What if I kind of got into the system of nursing and healthcare and the medical world and helped to you know, break down some of those barriers for people? So that's sort of my um, kind of summary of all the places I moved around in, but there's lots more within those places. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, I would love to hear maybe a little bit more about your early community organizing. Like, I feel like you're someone that strikes me that you've gotten so far and it also, everything you've already described, like I can see the trajectory, but um, I wonder if, the earliest community organizing, if you find that there are pieces of that in where you are now, or if it radicalized you in some way mm -hmm. um, to where you are now. Yeah. So I think, you know, the first organizing I started doing was leaving Florida. Florida just felt like a, a tough place to do anything. And, and I was in like, you know, middle school and high school there. Um, it just felt like a politically different it's way worse now but politically difficult place to be in to come out or to really have any kind of radical politics um I think in Atlanta you know being in college at Emory politicized me a lot like um <clears throat> being a part of different queer circles there was a you know LGBT group on campus at that time I was I didn't identify as a part of the community but clearly something was there but I was like oh let me go to these meetings as an ally <laughs> I kept saying as an I would start every sentence with like as an ally and several people there just knew they, <laughs> they were sort of like he's gonna figure it out at some point so um you know around that time is when I I came out as a lesbian first I I like to say I've been all the letters like I've been a heterosexual woman and straight woman I've been a lesbian I've been bisexual I've been trans and queer, so covering all the letters. Uh, but in, at Emory is when I got more politicized around organizing, and specifically was like a part of the the women's center, which you know nowadays I think back in the language was really exclusionary to trans people, but it wasn't a, something I really understood at the time. So I got very involved in feminism and the women's center, and um, working with queer youth at the time, like helping to organize. Um, different queer youth projects and um and like connecting with anti-racist feminist organizing so that's when I kind of really got a part of like more white anti-racist organizing and solidarity with BIPOC people and people of color and through feminism 
which is interesting because then later I was like, hmm, the feminism I was involved in was like not very inclu uh, inclusive of trans people. But at the time, it wasn't something I fully understood. And I felt like that was the place that you do organizing. So um, so I think through anti-racist organizing and through feminism is kind of how I got into um, the, where I was politically and kind of understanding these different systems of oppression. I feel like I placed it to that time where I was like, oh, as I started to come out as a lesbian, or um, I think at first I said I was bisexual and uh which fit at the time and then kind of morphed into being a lesbian. And I realized like, as I kind of stepped outside that kind of group of being like straight and heterosexual, even though that didn't totally fit for me, I started to understand these different forms of oppression. Like how does, you know, this sexism work? How does racism work? And all these different things. Um, and luckily I was a part of some great organizing groups there. And when I got out to the Bay Area, I kind of plugged into a lot more organizing. I worked for a place called um, Lyric, which is like a LGBTQ youth center. I worked for the Gay Straight Alliance Network, which was working with Gay Straight Alliances in schools, and um, and Glisten, which is also like it's like very professional gay things I did out there, uh, and really working specifically to make safe places first for like queer youth in schools, um, and at the, and also organizing. There was a a organization called or a program called challenging white supremacy i don't think it exists anymore out there but i got plugged into that and they and i learned a lot about solidarity work um and organizing work and i'm also jewish so i learned a lot about uh, jewish organizing in particular like right now it's it's very pressing but like a solidarity work with palestinians and um that kind of came out of and so i think from an early early-ish age, I made these kinds of connections to different forms of oppressions and, like, thinking that it wasn't just about LGBTQ rights, like, really connecting all of the different things. Um, but when I first came out as trans was actually, ironically, a conference in Florida, of all places, that when I, <laughs> there was a conference in Florida that was a trans conference, and I went as an ally <laughs> to learn more. <laughs> And then there was, uh, I had only, I had only known about trans women. I had never heard anything about trans men. Um, and again, I identified as lesbian at that time. I went to this conference to learn more as an ally. And I um, saw my first, the first trans man I've ever met before who was speaking. And I just started hysterical crying, like in the back of the auditorium that we were in. And I couldn't understand why. Like I just had this outpouring of emotion and I I couldn't even place it like I couldn't think I remember thinking why am I crying this feels embarrassing there's a lot of people here I don't know and then I sort of left you know left the room and sat with it for a while and realized like I had never seen a trans guy before I had never heard of trans I'd never and that that point there was also somebody who identified as genderqueer which I think now maybe we'd use more of the term non-binary but we didn't know that term then um probably some folks did but I didn't and so I had met, you know, the first trans guy I'd ever met and someone who identified as non-binary or genderqueer. And I was like, this is who I am. Like, I felt like I started identifying as genderqueer at that time and feeling more like my gender was queer and that it sort of, you know, enveloped all different kinds of genders. I didn't feel like um, a woman or a man. I felt like something else. And so it was the first time I had words for it. Uh, and that, you know, that helped me connect to to other, like, you know it's so funny I don't I don't know if people still use the word genderqueer but it was really big for me at the time and so that's like 
2000, 2001 or so, it felt like a really important identity, something that, that felt queer and radical and also like really just talking about gender, you know, which felt like that was who I was at the time. And I also remember at that time, I was like, I don't want any hormones, any surgery. I just feel like this is who I am. And, um, and it absolutely was at that time, you know, later on in life, I started to kind of feel like maybe I do want to start testosterone and maybe I am interested in chest surgery. Uh, but that particular time was a really important and powerful time that when I talk to other trans men or gender queer folks, non-binary people that are around my age, even if they didn't grow up in the same places or go to the same places, we have a similar, I feel like we have a similar connection to this like term of gender queer at that time and finding each other, you know, in a place where we didn't see each other represented at all. And then just teaching each other things like we didn't know about trans health like nothing you know we all had had these really negative experiences in healthcare where no one knew how to take care of us or you know and really hearing some you know very offensive things within healthcare getting questions that were really inappropriate and then just finding each other and being like okay I, I found this thing online I'll never forget when when I moved to Boston for that gender and cultural studies program we all were like interested in hormones but there were so many hoops you had to jump through. I mean, it was remarkable. It was like a multiple therapist you'd have to see, depending on where you live. Like you'd have to sort of show in some way that you were, were living in the gender you wanted to live in for a certain period of time. And you had to have this narrative for the therapist too. Like we all would share our script. It's kind of funny. Like nobody knew this, but we would be like, okay, this therapist, you got to say this script. So nobody was being their authentic selves with these providers. You know, we were all like, how do we get what we need? And so it was really hard to get testosterone at that time. Again, it's like 2002. So I'll never forget. There was this older trans guy who was like, hey, I found this testosterone spray. Who knows where he ordered it from? I have no idea. In fact, I think it was like water in a spray bottle. It is funny to say as a nurse and nurse practitioner now who provides hormones to the community that we were just so desperate for something outside of this medical establishment, right? So we just like sprayed ourselves with this weird testosterone spray that did nothing because I'm sure there was nothing in it. Um, but I feel like it's a very telling time of when like we just shared things with each other. We didn't know what we were doing, but some of us would be like, oh yeah, I really feel a change. <laughs> like, there was no change. It was probably water. Um that went a little off track for your question, but I think it just like, I'm thinking back to what connection with trans people and non-binary folks looked like at that time where we were just, we had very little understanding of our own health, but we knew more than any of the clinicians or therapists we were seeing. So we just sort of, you know, shared scripts with each other of what to say. And our group was really small because we knew trans women but we had not met or heard of other trans men or non-binary people before. Um, so it felt like a new discovery, you know, that feels so different nowadays, but at that time it would be like, if you met one other like gender queer or trans man, you're like, I need to get all your information and be your best friend, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> well, if you don't see an example of yourself, you know, it's, yeah, there's, how do you feel do you feel that that's changed now as far as like trans visibility or like, yeah, how do you feel now versus then? Yeah, I, 
it feels so different. And especially now I'm in this, I was saying before in this, this nursing PhD program. So we're talking a lot about trans research or I'm talking a lot about trans research. No, nobody else is doing that, but I'm learning about research and I'm trying to bring in trans research. And I, I bring it up because there's so much more than there ever was. Like when I was younger, we just didn't have anything. We would just, it would just be our stories. I mean, kind of really similar to like oral histories, right? We would just talk to each other. We didn't know anyone at that time who had been on testosterone for uh, over 10 years. You know, we were kind of doing it ourselves. At this point, I've been on testosterone for over 20 years and had chest surgery 20 years ago, but I didn't know anyone else who had. So we didn't know, like, what are the long-term effects of this? You know, what? how long are we going to survive for? Those sorts of things we really didn't know, and we didn't see ourselves represented. Um, but now, you know, I'm, I've been a part of trans organizing and specifically trans healthcare for over 20 years, and I've seen how it's grown. And it's, there's some ways it's gone backwards too, like in the, all the sort of anti-trans bills that exist in this country. Um, but there are other ways that at least people know, like this is, I have a right to get trans healthcare. You know, e even if you're in a state that's awful and you're trying to organize around it, like there's at least that sort of, I think for most people feeling like we have gotten this healthcare for this certain period of time. We have existed for this certain period of time. We see ourselves in media, you know, we see ourselves even if it's negative representations, we see ourselves more. And so it has changed a ton, you know? And now I think about it when I go to these conferences where it's not like find the one trans person in the room and become best friends because there's so many of us now. And they're like, we, you know, it's in some ways, I think we've lost a little bit of that depending on where you live. Certainly if you live in places where there's not a big trans community, then you're going to find each other and connect. But I do find in like the bigger cities, it's not as urgent or necessary to connect with people because you already have your you know your circles and and the organizing and the healthcare centers and the support groups so i think things have grown resources have grown um there's certainly been a backlash to it but i think you know there's way more i i teach also i teach at um yale school of nursing so I, uh, a part of this gender and sexuality health justice concentration where i get to teach nurse practitioners and midwives about um many different things but with a focus on trans health and so it's amazing to have all these resources and um i've been told by my students that i give them too many um too much homework assignments too many readings because i've never seen so many readings on trans health so i'm like listing 15 things to read <laughs> and now i've just said get to what you can get to like whatever speaks to you but just letting them know like i didn't have this when i was in school so I'm going to give you every single reading I can find. Um, so in that way, it has changed a lot, just that there's more resources, there's more people in power positions too. Like we didn't see any trans folks in the media or like in legislation or in even like executive directors of organizations. So just seeing people or as nurse practitioners or, you know, healthcare providers, I still get a lot of patients who say to me, trans patients who are like, wow, you're a nurse practitioner. I didn't think a trans person could do that. So I think there's changes, but then there's still, certainly depending on where you live and um, what kind of backlash you're experiencing, there's ways in which we have gone backwards a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I a lot of what you're saying resonates with me. Um, I'm 37, so I think like I also grew up I'm like slightly younger than you, but there's so much that wasn't around me or articulated. So yeah, um, like, I guess, 
And one thing that I wanted to turn to in hearing you in hearing you speak is um, just that like the creativity of like being kind of coming into a transness with people around you and not mm. having um, words for how you identified and that that strikes me as needing to be rather creative you know like the the yeah. testosterone spray <laughs> right. like, it's so cool you know in a way you're like even though we didn't have words for it we're still right like, doing going about it in a way and I guess I wonder even if we've come further and maybe it's like there's some steps backwards too that um if you were given like full agency or you and like your trans community within the healthcare system without pushback, mm. is there, are there things that you would do um, that you also can't do now? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this specifically around like trauma informed care in healthcare. I could do a lot of, I do a lot of trainings about trans health. And um, I've also been a part of a few different, you know, organizations like Calamord. Um, I started different trans health programs led by trans folks, like a lot of the like by and for trans people. Um, I find depending on where you work, it, sometimes that's not possible, right? Like you'll, you'll have trans people you work with, but the institution or the leadership is not, it, it doesn't represent, you know, the community or it's like mostly white and doesn't represent, you know, BIPOC and people of color, or I've been, just been a part of a lot of organizations where I've been the only trans person or I'm trying to start a trans program, but the leadership doesn't sign on. So I think, you know, some of those barriers of having to go through all these different steps of having people sign on where you have to, I do a lot of like convincing people that trans health is important. And it's very, I've been reflecting on this lately. It's really draining. I mean, I've been doing it for so long that I've gotten really used to it, but I spend most of my days convincing people that we should exist and receive healthcare, you know, which I also feel like because I've been doing it for so long, I'd rather take that weight off of other people that maybe can't, um, or that's too traumatizing for people. I'm like, so unfortunately used to some really offensive questions or, you know, people that don't know what they're talking about that I feel like I can also reach and connect with people in all different um, places in their understanding. Uh, so it would be nice to not have those sort of barriers there where I'm like, okay, I see you have a very offensive question and I'm going to try to answer it in a way that makes you still feel comforted and you know comfortable and want to take care of our, our population. I help people start trans health clinics. I've been the director of trans health at um, Community Healthcare Network, which is in New York City and has a bunch of different clinics. And so I've helped people start these clinics. And what I find is that if trans folks are not involved, or there's not at least like trans people that are at an advisory council where their voice is a part of it, and it's, you know, cisgender leadership that maybe aren't the best allies or don't have the most understanding or are doing it for, you know, profit, something that they can make money off of, they're not sustainable programs and they're not based in what we need as a community. So if we didn't have those barriers, you know, and we do have in this country, some clinics and organizations that are, you know, by and for trans people, which I think are wonderful. And, um, but if we didn't have some of those barriers around funding or around 
what's considered important health. You know, I had to do organizing under HIV for so long and HIV health is of course so important and a lot of trans people, you know, are navigating their HIV status, but it felt like it was the only way we could talk about trans issues was under the funding umbrella of HIV. Um, and, you know, the messaging that it was trans women in particular that were more at risk. And so all of that language was very challenging, I think, to our organizing and to thinking about like, what do we need in healthcare? So right now people will, when I do these trainings or help start clinics, people will say, okay, so we have to do hormones and sur gender affirming surgery. And I worked in gender affirming surgery for a long time. And I say, well, yes, some, for some people, yes, that's what they need, but that's not all of who we are. You know, we have other health needs. We have, so I, I think more holistic health and trauma-informed care and, and that sort of way of looking at health is what I would, or what I do and what I want to be more involved in um, to see us as whole people, to live our authentic selves. It's not just, you know, here's your hormones and surgery, which is quite important for people, but again, not all of who we are. And then also preparing people more. You know, I think that's part of trauma-informed care, like preparing our communities for what it's like to, to access the healthcare system and the medical system and um, and seeing other things as health, right? Like housing, you know, not just our our medical appointments. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things I think I would do if I didn't have those kinds of barriers of organizations and funding and, and leadership um, and having to like constantly convince people that they should focus on our health, right? I've just been doing it for so long that I've only recently stopped to say, this is very draining. And I talk a lot about trauma and I'm like, right, I think I've experienced, I don't think, I know I've experienced a lot of trauma of constantly having to teach doctors and nurses who are all cisgender and don't know anything about trans and are quite transphobic, why they should take care of us, right? Because after a while, that's like, really, really draining. And so if I didn't have to do that, when I get to be a part of groups that are all trans um, folks, or at least like great allies, then it feels like a weight is lifted off me and I can actually focus on our, on our health needs and our, on our social and community needs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're answering a lot of the questions that I've already had. <laughs> well, that's good because I was like, am I going completely off track? But I guess no. you, know, you just talk and see how it goes. <laughs> no, I'm like, oh, you're already looking. <laughs> I was going to ask you, you know, if you if you felt like you had examples of yourself around you, mm. like while you're um, maybe transforming the grief of like being mistreated in a healthcare system, like how you how do you transform that grief into the work that you're doing? And yes, are there examples of you around you? And also like, yeah. if not, like it sounds, you've already spoken to the challenges, but maybe are there things that you do for yourself or like acts of self-care that help you? Um, yeah, like how, how do you transform that grief mm -hmm. into such positive action? Or right. are they connected? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny. I, I teach within this gender and sexuality health justice program. I teach um, these nurse practitioner and midwifery students a few different things. but And I bring in community leaders. And they're, they're all like my friends and colleagues that I bring in as guest speakers. Um, and I teach them one week of, it should be more than this, but one week of self-care. Like, what does that look like? Especially as nurses, because we all get burnt out. So I talk about how do you create a self-care and sustainability 
plan, especially for us who are queer and trans nurses that are going to be experience a lot of trauma in the medical establishment. And so just recently, I was like, wow, I'm teaching this to the students. It means so much to them. They all come back to it years later and say, thank you for this. But I'm not doing it for myself at all. Uh, and I think I actually realized this, or it sunk in a little bit more at this trans celebration weekend in Fire Island, which is where I connected with the trans oral history folks, because they did a presentation there. There was this um, kind of like, one of the events that was at the, the Belvedere and it was like really wonderful put in Fire Island, which is my special place. I think that is part of my self-care is like going to a beach place where people can just be naked, especially trans folks can just be completely free and naked on the beach, which is, I think, just the dream for me. That feels like self-care and just like all different kinds of bodies and you're not feeling like, oh, someone's looking at me and, and they're just trying to understand why my body looks this way. Um, and at that trans celebration weekend, which I had never been, I think it was the first one that's ever happened, I thought everything is about our joy. Like it was just amazing to be, to not be in a space where it's always about our suffering and our trauma, which is important and we experience this and we should talk about it. Um, but I felt very emotional and it was because I was like, oh, we're just having joy because we're together we're celebrating each other's bodies. Like it was felt intimate and beautiful and it was all different ages and like very diverse. And then I thought like, that's actually what self-care does look like, like being able to be in community. And um, as a healthcare provider, I spend so much time taking care of our community's like collective trauma, you know? And I, and I feel like that's why I went into this field. But then I don't get the opportunity all the time to be a part of the joy and resilience as well. And I talk to a lot of other trans therapists and healthcare providers about this. We often have these spaces where there, those are there. That's our clients and our patients. Yeah. Especially when I when I was, you know, 20 years in New York City working at Cal Nord, which is where all the you know, queer and trans people go, working at a trans clinic at Community Healthcare Network. There were boundaries around like parties I could be a part of or celebrations I could be a part of. Um, just to not make patients or community members uncomfortable as being their healthcare provider. And so I didn't think about self-care. You know, I thought like I'm taking care of the community and that's the job that I've taken on and I'm, and I love it. It's like, I can't imagine not doing it, but then how do I get to have those spaces that are affirming and, you know, how do we think about healthcare differently around like, yes, your community is also going to be maybe taking care of you. And that's wonderful. Like there's a way in which I know if I see another trans clinician or therapist I'm like depending on how comfortable I feel with them I can kind of relax and feel a level of trust that I wouldn't necessarily feel otherwise where at least they understand some of the barriers that I face in life so I think being in community is self-care and also you know we we my my partner and I have a now six-year-old uh, moved to Stanford Connecticut mostly because we were like Brooklyn is our home but it's a really hard place to People do it, but it's a really hard place to raise a kid and have space, especially during COVID, which is when we moved. And so now we have this, like better quality of life where we have space and nature and all of this self-care, but we have less community. So it's been interesting to navigate that. Like, it's wonderful to walk outside and like be in nature and have space and not be in the grind of New York City. Um, but the, that's where like our community and our people are. So we're doing a lot of like back and forth um, 
so I think self-care looks like having space and having nature and the beach um, and also still being connected to community. Um, yeah, I think that answers your question. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would say I like can relate to wanting to leave New York City sometimes, but that's the thing that I worry about the most is community. So, right. Um, but I was going to ask you, like, maybe, maybe you could hark back to one of your earliest memories of New York City and speak to when you were in New York City. And, um, and if you want to expand on what it's been like to leave New York City and now live in Stamford, Connecticut, um, I would love to hear, like, even more about it. Yeah. I mean, New York City will always be my home. It, I lived in all these different places, but it's definitely New York City. And I remember when I was in, still in Boston, I was only in Boston for that gender and cultural studies program. I took the Chinatown bus from Boston to New York. Like first it was every weekend. And that's also where I met my partner who's a native New Yorker. So I would always come visit him, but um, I started taking it during the week. That's when I was like, I got to move because it's like a Wednesday and I'm like on a four hour bus for like two days just to get to New York City and back and I started going to Cal Lord as a patient too from Boston at that time I wasn't connected to Boston like um, healthcare as much and so I was on that bus all the time and I was like clearly I need to move but New York City felt really intimidating to me it just felt like the subway all the people I will not be able to get around and finally I just was like all right if so I'm spending almost every day of the week in New York City, maybe I should stop paying rent in Boston and actually move. Um, so I moved in 2005 mm -hmm. to New York and um, my partner is also trans, so it's a, a trans guy. So we, you know, have a lot of like in common around um, trans organizing and he's black. So we also have a lot of like organizing around interracial relationships and like being, you know, working on being allies and all of that stuff. So I moved to New York, but we were very careful about um, not being codependent because we'd come out of codependent relationships. So we didn't spend like any time with each other when I first moved to New York, just to like be careful in our, how we were building our relationships. We're also in an open relationship. And so I did a lot of like discovering things on my own. And it was just one of my favorite times. Like I got one of the, I don't even know if they make these books anymore. It was like the insider guide to New York City. It was like an actual book. Like it wasn't online. <laughs> and I would like highlight different things. And I would, um, I was working at this international LGBTQ organization called Eaglehurt, which was like the worst acronym ever. It was like International Something Something Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. Uh, so I, that was my first job in New York City. And it was in the Empire State Building of all places. So that's where I worked, which is just an intense touristy place to work in. Um, and I started Big finding apple. it. <laughs> yeah, so I really came in with a bang and I was making like 30000 a year, which for New York, it's, certainly people make less, but it was a tough salary <laughs> for New York City. Um, and I found like a sublet in Brooklyn and I just started doing all this exploring. And I feel like that was a really important time for me to like make my own relationships with people and finding queer and trans folks and going to Cal and Lord, I think really helped me too. But um, I started getting involved in 
different like Jewish organizing, different anti-racist organizing, and, and um, different trans and queer parties before I became a nurse. There is like pre-nursing. I got to be involved in these different parties and these different connections, and um, it was a great time. Like it was just seeing myself represented, you know, being finding all this community that I hadn't had before, uh, and so Brooklyn in particular, you know, finding all the people there, and then that's when I I started as a health educator at Calamar, just teaching people about trans health and connect and about hormones and about surgery, and then that's when I decided I want to, I fell in love with nursing and I was like, I want to be someone that can help create space for our community to see people like us and to feel comfortable in these visits. I just had seen so myself and so many other people feel uncomfortable in healthcare visits. So all that to say, I had a great, you know, New York city, Brooklyn experience, and then went into nursing, which was very difficult. Nursing as a field is quite conservative. There are a lot of radical nurses within the nursing field but being a trans person in nursing school was and this was in new york this was at nyu um it was really rough i was the only trans person i would i would you know i just felt very unsafe so it was a very hard time to and that's why i'm so drawn to teaching nurses now is because it felt like i couldn't concentrate on the nursing knowledge i was trying to learn because i was so uncomfortable in being trans or in all the binary language of women's health and men's health and how it was not inclusive of trans folks at all um so yeah new york is like an interesting you know wonderful and queer and trans space and then a really conservative nursing world that i got into um and then started working in hospitals and cal lord and, and those sorts of places um and as for the move to stanford kind of random we just <laughs> my partner and i just felt like and there's a lot around having a kid like he also as a trans guy carried our child which was its own experience in new york city um which is quite awful. Like there were a few OBGYN providers who did, wouldn't even see us, um, you know, because he's trans and they didn't understand it, which was an interesting time because I was doing all these trainings for healthcare providers. And here I am on the other side of it being like, you can't not see us. Like, <laughs> do I have to do a train? And I did a training actually on the, he gave birth at Mount Sinai and I did a training for the unit like before I didn't even get paid for it I just did a training for the whole unit for the nurses to be like there's a trans guy that's going to deliver at this hospital and we're not going to go through this if it's going to be a traumatic experience so here's what you need to do um luckily they mostly mostly did it um so you know having a child in Brooklyn especially as really when COVID started we're like we had already been thinking about it, but we're like, we got to get out of here because we don't have space and we're sort of all on top of each other and we need a better quality of life. It just felt really a draining place to be in. Um, and so we were looking at upstate New York and different places and then randomly Stanford came around because uh, it's still a really quick Metro North trip to Grand Central. And um, I had gotten this job at Yale for, for teaching nursing students, which is in Connecticut too. So and then my um, partner works at Transgender Law Center, and he works from home. He's also a nurse, but he got burnt out from nursing. And so he uh, he was like a hospice and RN, an ER nurse. And then he got this job where he gets to work from home. So we're like, let's just, you know, have some space. We need some people out here. It's a different world, for sure. There's some really sweet people. Like, I feel like I've learned that straight cis people can be friendly and nice. I wasn't really aware of that 
over. And so we have all these neighbors who are all like straight cis folks and they like bake us cookies. And here they, you know, they're we're like this, you know, black and white trans couple with a child and they're bringing us cookies. And I, of course, brought my New York City energy to be like, what's in these cookies? I'm like really suspicious of them. <laughs> like, why are they so nice to us? What's going on? <laughs> they they take care of our kids. They take care of our dogs. Like, our kid loves school here. So, I think for our family it was a good decision. But it's been it's been tough to feel like we're find other people. There's some queer organizing here, like queer parents organizing, and um, we knew it wasn't going to be the same as Brooklyn. But luckily, we're we're close enough that even though our, our life is really different. Like there's just a comfort that we have that's nice that certainly you have in New York City and I love going back there, um, but things just feel a little bit easier in some ways. Um, harder in other ways, but easier in, in some ways around parenting. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about parenting if you felt comfortable to talk about it, like what yeah. that's like and if there's any way in which you feel like you and your partner our parenting that's different than the way that you were parented and just how transness is incorporated like within your parenting um yeah whatever yeah. you'd like to share um regarding that subject that's like I mean how much time do you have that's, that's like a lot well, well we <laughs> yes, we still have time so you can <laughs> you can go a lot about parenting um I feel like every day is like a new adventure with parenting but I actually never wanted a kid before I wasn't that wasn't part of what I thought I would have in my life um and then my partner and I've been together 20 years so we have been together quite some time and also we share a lot of these like trans that stories that I've been telling which is really amazing to have this historical I mean he's native New Yorker so he's been born and raised in Brooklyn he has way more stories than I have um he was like a part of some really amazing organizing when he was like 15 <laughs> but uh he's pretty special so um he would also be a good person for this uh but he and I you know got together and it wasn't until we had been together 10 years or so where we started to think like hey we both weren't interested in kids but now that we've like experienced this connection we have with each other and our connection with the community it just started to come up more so then we talked more about it and um really got this amazing doula who that lives in Brooklyn and it's like a trans sensitive doula to kind of talk us through some of the process and um we ended up going through like there's a lot of different ways of how we were gonna have a, a child uh, but we ended up using a, a sperm you know like a sperm banking which is its own weird experience uh where you're like taking it I don't know it's very strange <laughs> but we we had tried first with someone we knew and that didn't work out so then we went this route um but the experience of going through, as I was talking about before, the experience of going through like the OBGYN world as a trans couple, as like two male passing people, you know, the looks we would get in the waiting rooms, like the, you know, even in New York City, just the, the OBGYN providers who just were very uncomfortable when we're like, it's actually the care is the same. Like you're providing the same care. I don't know what the big deal is, uh, but it was tough. So that process was hard and then um we had our kid who's just amazing and but when we started when our kid was born we used they pronouns for um now she identifies as she but we use they pronouns and that was really an experience like in our minds we felt like we don't want to put this gender on this child we actually asked for them not to tell us when the 
you know, they do the like announcement to girl or a boy. We're like, please don't share this with us. And please don't make an announcement when our kid is born, which they had a really hard time with. Like they did not know how to deal with that. And then they also had pink and blue things. And we're like, don't use that. And they were like, what do we do? <laughs> I was like, there are other colors. <laughs> <laughs> they had a real problem. It was like they were thrown for a loop. They didn't know what to do. Uh, but the process of having a kid that we didn't ascribe a, a gender to, um, I learned so much. Like just how difficult it is for people. Like in the preschool system, this was in New York, like family members, people on the street that just ask you if it's a girl or a boy. And so there was a lot of resistance to people. You know, I remember when we said like there was somebody asked us on the street, like, oh, do you have a girl or a boy? And we were like, we don't know yet. And they couldn't process that information. <laughs> it made them very uncomfortable. Um, but the most important thing for us is that we were raising a kid that didn't feel like they were forced into one or the other. But there were things we couldn't account for, like preschools that could not use they. They just had a really hard time with it. Um, we just talked about gender stereotypes. We're like, if you can't use they, which doesn't seem that hard, but if you're like not able to, just making sure you didn't put our child into like a certain stereotype of, of gender. And um, it was just really tough all around to, um, and that's, and I think about it because I'm like, that's New York City. I imagine how hard it is in other places but just within the school system and with family and friends. Um, and then when she was four, she just came home and she was like dad and daddy, which she has decided who's dad and who's daddy. Um, she's like, I'm I'm a girl and I use she, her pronouns. I'm like, great, that's why we did this. But of course I, for some reason, my partner always makes fun of me. I had a hard time with it because I was like, how do you know? <laughs> and he was like, how does anyone know? Like, that's the whole point. We don't, nobody knows how they know, they just know. But I was questioning it. <laughs> like, I can't believe I did this whole process. And now I'm questioning why you want to identify as a girl. <laughs> uh, which was interesting, right? Because I think for me, I was like, is this because all your friends are girls? Is this because you think you love dresses and you think that means you have to be a girl? Uh, but she was just like, Daddy, this is who I am. I'm like, right, right. I have to listen to that. <laughs> so... It was very interesting, you know, just raising a kid and thinking about gender. And um, it's amazing to have been doing trainings on gender and all of this for so long. And then when it's your own kid, you're like, wow, I had never imagined how hard this would be and how challenging it would be to just be like, whatever gender you want to be is fine because you got to deal with, you know, the rest of the world. Um, so we've learned a lot about parenting and about ourselves and about our relationship and um, just trying to like, have a kid that understands all these different dynamics. I don't know. It's an it's a battle every day to think about like how do you parent because I think there's a part of it that's also like you're reparenting yourself. It's very different. You were asking about how I was raised. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't like necessarily super pushed into uh, being a girl, but I de it was definitely like all the pinks and the dresses. So I guess in some ways I was, but they were like you can be any kind of girl. I think that's, they sort of felt like you don't have, you know, you don't have to wear dresses. You could be a girl that wears pants, you know? So they felt they were being really radical about that. They had not considered that maybe I didn't want to be a girl at all. Um, and I have a younger brother. So we were definitely put into this, like, the girl does this and the boy does this. And so they're very loving parents. Um, but they definitely were like, this is the role you're in. And they had a process of when I came out. 
it was a lot of coming out. Came to, out to them as bisexual. Then I came out to them as a lesbian. Then I came out to them as trans. So understandably, they were a little like, which is the one? Like, <laughs> we don't know what we're supposed to do here. Uh, but they had the hardest time with the trans one. Like, that was just really, really hard for them. They they just were sort of attached to having a daughter. And they already had a son. So they just felt like they couldn't make that shift. And so there was a process when I was in college when I was stopped talking to them because they wouldn't call me Nathan. Like, I changed my name. I told them I changed my name. And they couldn't call me he. And so I just said, this was right before I was going to get chest surgery. And I said, I don't want to come out of this surgery with you still calling me this old name and this pronoun I don't identify with. So if you can't get it together, like you can't be there for me after surgery because they really wanted to be, well, they didn't want me to get the surgery. But then once they knew it was happening anyway, they were like, well, we want to be there. And I was like, I'm not waking up from this surgery to an old name, you know, that I don't identify with. So they had their own process. They finally, um, I told them, I was like, go find some other parents I can't be I can't process with you your grief I mean they would literally say like they were grieving their daughter and I'm like some people actually lost their child like they died so maybe you should think about how your child's all here um and I found them like a peace flag group that had what that also had parents you know with trans kids and that was transformative to them especially my mom like they started they could kind of work out all their parent issues with other parents that had gone through it already and they it was like probably a year we stopped talking and then I mean on and off talking and then they went through this p-flag group and they came back like different then they were really supportive and affirming and you know they certainly make mistakes but it, it transformed our relationship and my mom became a um like a support person to my friends moms that were going through it which was really sweet so I would just, you know, I have a friend whose mom just wasn't, couldn't deal with trans stuff. And I'd be like, here, here's my mom's number, call her. And so she had this little support group for a while. It was really cute. So they've come a long way. Like certainly my upbringing, I'm teaching my kids differently than than they did. But I also feel like they, they did have a process that they were able to kind of work through and um, come out the other side, you know? Do you feel that that um, shows up in a multi-generational way now that you're parenting? Are they are they still around your parents? And do you all? Yeah, have- we do. My parents are very close with my child, like very, very close. Like they're on FaceTime like every day. They come to visit a lot. I'm just going to close this. Um, they come, they come, they live in Florida still, uh, which they have finally come to terms with the fact that we are not gonna they want us to come back to visit and we're like that state is so scary for us like we cannot I love the beaches but we cannot be there um so they visit Connecticut a ton and we actually it's part of why we got our first home because um we got a space that they can stay with us you know and they can be here more and they can help with child care so they're way more involved in my life than they ever have been because they're grandparents and they really love it um so that's super sweet and I also had a a grandma who has passed my mom's mom. We were so so close, like so close. And I just have a very sweet story of when I came out to her as trans because I thought she's not gonna get it. She's a grandma. She doesn't know anything about this. I was terrified because we were so close. Um, and so it was like we were just having bagels and cream cheese. Like that's what we do as, as Jews, you know, we <laughs> love bagels and cream cheese together. So we're having, and it was one day I was like, I can't hide this anymore. I had identif- I was identifying as gender queer at that time. 
I definitely looked different, but I didn't look the way I look now. I wasn't on hormones or anything. I just like, I had pink hair and a lot of piercings and I can't imagine it, but I did. <laughs> and I, um, and I had really short hair. So already I'm sure my grandma was like, something's going on here. Uh, and so I were having the bagels. I sat with her and I was like, grandma, there's something I want to tell you. I'm not sure you're going to understand it at all. You may never heard of it before. And this was at the time that my parents were having a hard time. My brother was having a hard time. Everyone couldn't call me by Nathan. And so I said, I'm trans. That's what this, this means. This I'm, I'm going by Nathan. Um, I want to use he, him pronouns. And then she just like sat there for a while. And I was like, oh no, this is the end of our relationship. This is really hard. And she said, are you happy? And I said, yeah. And she said, all right, pass me another bagel, Nathan. And from then on, she used Nathan and he and him. She told all of her friends at the club, which is like the old age home that she was at. She would teach them about trans stuff. She would correct my brother and my parents and be like, get it together. You need to call him this. So I just felt like it was a really special, beautiful relationship. And also kind of counters that narrative that other, that people of that age don't get it. I mean, certainly some people don't, but that was it. She just got it right away. She's like, I just want you to be happy. If you're happy, that's great. How, what was, what's your grandmother's name? What, what was her Jan. name? Grandma Jan. Grandma Jan. Yeah. She was a model in New York City. She was Miss, uh, they used to do Miss Subways in the 1920s. I just learned that. What's a Miss Subway? So Miss Subways is <laughs> all of these models would um, apply to be Miss Subway. And that meant that you get your picture on the subway like you know as like miss subway the model so you each year be like miss subway 1921 miss subway so she was like miss subway 1924 or something and she was plastered wow. on the subway. <laughs> it was pretty exceptional she would wear like leopard skin pants all the time like really tight leopard skin pants and she was a model wow yeah. And she was living in uh, Florida, too, at the time? Yeah, she grew up in New York, in Brooklyn, actually, um, mm -hmm. in Brooklyn and I think Queens also. And then she, she moved to Florida. So she lived near us where I grew up in Florida. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful story. Right? It's kind of, it's one of my favorite stories. It's, yeah, it makes me emotional. Yeah, totally. It was really, it was just like so quick, you know? And I sort of, it was a moment that I also learned like, this doesn't have to be hard for people. Like, person at, like, I don't know, I guess at that point she was, like, 70 or something or maybe close to 80, and she just got it right away. Oh, so, like, effortless. <laughs> right? It was. She's like, first of all, are you happy? Second of all, I'm going to use this name and I need that bagel. Like, it was just, like, nothing, you know? It just seemed unfazed. And she never really, and there was never any like follow-up, like, you know, that she had a bunch of questions. She was just like, all right, this is what you want and you're happy and that's it. Do you feel that since that time, did she, even if it was like, it sounds like she was, it was easy for her to just like accept it for some reason. Like maybe, maybe it says something about the person that she was. Mm, yeah. Um, did she also like reorient herself towards you? Like, 
in an effortless way, the way that she asked you questions or things about your life? Like, did she shift or? Yeah. Yeah. It did feel like she just, I don't know, she was, I mean, because she was a model, she was really into fashion and like dresses and all of that. So I thought she'd have a problem with the fact that I was not going to be wearing those kinds of clothes anymore because she was pretty into like getting me dresses and, but she did really shift. In fact, she, she like taught me how to tie my tie, like really, really sweet. She used to tie my grandfather's ties. It was like a really beautiful moment where she just kind of shifted so easily to being like, okay, this is your gender. And I remember one day she said, I think your hair is too short. And I immediately panicked because I was like, oh no, she wants me to have like long girly hair again. But it wasn't that. She thought it was too short. I she was right, actually. I had like cut my hair really short. Like, I don't know. I thought it was cool, but it was like a buzz cut. It was, it didn't work for me. It works for some people. It didn't work for me. So for her, she was just like, I think you should have a little bit more hair on top and it'll like curl a little. And then you could have, it's actually how I do my hair now. Like you could have a little fade over your, so it wasn't at all about gender. She just was like, your hair doesn't look good. <laughs> you know? But I immediately made it about gender being like, oh, you want long curly hair? Like I had very long hair. And she's like, no, you just, that look is not great for you. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. I know. She's pretty special. She sounds like she was a very special person. Yeah. Do you feel that, um, I was going to ask you um, if there's anyone in your life that was really important to you that along your journey and it sounds like maybe your grandmother is one of those people but was there anybody else that comes to mind um that was like a beacon to you yeah so definitely my grandma and I think that I wish I could remember the name of this trans person that spoke at that conference in in Florida yeah but I think what I remember about him mostly one that he was trans and I had never seen a trans man before and it, also the person speaking next to him was genderqueer but that they were older like I was probably at that time I'm like the worst at math but I feel like I was in my 20s or something and they were 40 something which is interesting now to think about as now I'm 45 and I got called a trans elder for the first time in my life and I was like not I couldn't process it I was like I don't how am I a trans elder like I think a lot about aging and so I'd seen these two people that were organizing and that they were like in their 40s and I remember that was a huge moment for me one to meet my first like transgender queer folks but also to be like you made it to 40 something and and you're doing all right you know like you you had a hard life but you've made it this far so my grandma was sort of the person that like felt like accepted me no matter what and then these folks at this conference were like the first visual, you know, representation I'd seen of people and that they were older and they like were surviving, you know? Um, so that felt really big. And then I think just like intimate relationships that I had, like I've had a lot of relationships with trans people, both intimate and friendships. And I feel like those relationships were really important. I spent a lot of time in relationships with just people were, and I mean, it's changed now, but in the past where it just felt like I was always explaining myself. I'm like, I feel like I do that in my work all the time. So it's like, I don't want to be doing this in relationships too. Um, certainly people are different now, you know, some people at least, but I actually was just talking at that trans celebration weekend to this like 20 year old who called me the trans elder. 
gonna ask about, you who called but, you. <laughs> yeah, it was a random person at that trans celebration weekend. May have even been in the trans oral history uh, presentation. Like they were in the audience, and I think it was actually yeah because they were asking about they're having trouble getting hormones. There was a, the waiting list at Calumard was like really long, and somehow they heard that I was a healthcare provider. So someone pointed them to me, and I was like, oh here. So I also work. I have too many jobs, but I also work at folks, which is um, doing like telemedicine care for trans folks. So, um, which I, you know, I think there's pros and cons because they're like, it's a, you have to pay for it. And um, although they have like sliding scale, they're starting to accept insurance, but they didn't start that way. So I think it's not for everybody, but it is a really great thing for people that feel uncomfortable leaving their home or they experience a lot of barriers or in healthcare or they live in a place in the country where they have nowhere to go they can just open their computer and see me and I can prescribe them hormones and I get licensed in all these different states so I did say to this person I can help you through folks or I can help you through and my colleagues that work in all these different places and then they had asked me how old I was um I think they thought I was closer to their age and so I had said 45 and they had like a real react <laughs> and I'm like oh it's like old and you're a trans elder and I'm like this is not the conversation I wanted to have but <laughs> they uh, <laughs> they called me that and I just felt like okay I guess that's that's where I am so getting back to where I started with the story they were talking about dating while trans and um talking about all the different apps that they're on and how inclusive you know how they're finding those people and I did, then I did start to feel like a trans elder because I said, well, in my day, already I started in my day. So I've, I'm already there. <laughs> like in my day, we would go on Craigslist, like literally Craigslist that I don't even know if it still exists, but on the computer, like you didn't have it on your phone because we didn't have those kinds of phones. And you'd put an ad up, right? For like, you're a trans person that wants to hook up with whatever. And then you you have to wait by your computer for like the response. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't like be out at the club or at a bar. You had to like sit by like refresh. You know? And at that time, it was, so this is like two thousand one or something, two thousand two. Um, there were there was like a trans group within Craigslist, but it was clearly they only knew about trans women and really like transvestites too. They didn't anything about trans men and I'll never forget so I was telling this person the story about how this guy was interested and um I explained that I was a trans guy and it or genderqueer and they didn't understand like even up to the point where I was you know about to hug out this person and they said why didn't you dress and I was like what do you mean and they're like like you know like why don't you dressing and then I realized that they thought I was a trans woman or a transvestite and they were expecting me to show up like in makeup and a dress and a wig but potentially and that was my entry into like this is what it's like for trans folks and trans men in particular or non-binary people that were assigned female at birth trying to navigate this like sex and dating scene on Craigslist where you're just like refreshing your computer and this this person was like I can't even process this information they're like you're telling me you couldn't leave your house you had to sit by your computer and you were in a group that didn't even understand like your body. And I was like, yeah, that's what we had. <laughs> it's like a real moment of things are different now. And there's all these apps and trans folks are on it. And it does make me feel like a trans elder when I talk about it. 
Yeah. But also it sounds, I don't know, there's something so cool about like, I mean, challenging, of course, being you on Craigslist and then like like, meeting up with someone who, you know, you're already trying to find connection and then some that person being confused about identity. Um, But having like gone through that, it feels like, I don't know, you stand on quite a ground today. (laughs) That experience, I think, is really interesting and to, you know, to have come from there and be where you are now. Yeah. Be, um, is like a wealth of knowledge for someone who is 20 years old. And right. Has That's no true. Yeah. That. Yeah. It's so true. And I also been realizing or reflecting on um, that I, that I still expect that. I mean, I think that's what trauma is about. Like, or, or not, a, yeah, like trauma or, or difficult experiences where I still expect to have to explain my body or like what being trans is because I spend all of my work time doing that, whether it's through teaching or through workplaces or with healthcare centers or, organ, you know, with doctors and nurses or I think I assume that there's going to always have to be that explanation where so some of the younger trans folks, and not to say older trans folks don't experience this, but who are like, yeah, I just get on the app and like, I'm I'm kind of blown away by the fact that they either don't have to even say that they're trans or they say it and it's not an issue at all. I'm talking about if they're hooking up with people who are not trans. Um, I still am like a little blown away by it, even though it's been a long time. Um, I still think that like I'm a little of envious of the experience of walking through the world and just and certainly not everyone is accepted in any way but I think like navigating this sort of sex and dating scene especially in New York City and Brooklyn like where there's so many people there's not necessarily the same like fear that someone's gonna be like I don't know what trans is and it certainly can happen but it's just a little bit of a different experience and I talked to a lot of older trans folks about this too that we just like sit there like what is this experience like where you just are like, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Like, right. And I, I mean, to be a little envious, I think is fair, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of have like maybe a little bit of um, compassion for like your younger yeah. self, you're like, wow, right. that was really challenging. And I maybe, I wish I hadn't had to go through that. Yeah. Um, do you feel that having gone through that, there's anything that you on the flip side versus envy feel like it's given you? Um, like it feels like yeah. you have like such a wealth of like just just a richness of experience of like some struggle and having experienced what you experience also helps you in what you're doing yeah. um yeah I think I think so I think there's a way in which I'm like ap- appreciate things more um because I remember a time when there wasn't as much acceptance and again there's lots of places where there's not but when so coming back I'm coming back to this trans celebration weekend a lot because it was really transformative for me and it just happened it was like September right I think that's what happened my sense of time is really off but 
it recently happened. And uh, I, I think because I've gone through what I've gone through, and certainly trans folks have gone through like a lot more difficult experiences than I have, but because I've gone through like, you know, just sort of having to always explain myself or um, kind of convince people to take care of us and take care about our health and our um, well-being, that being at this weekend that was like so much again about joy and resilience and like celebrating our bodies and being together, I felt that the appreciation I had for it felt differently than the younger folks. Like young, the younger folks absolutely appreciated it. But I sat back with my like 45-year-old friend, trans guy friend, and being like, could you imagine if we had this when we were 20? And it, it wasn't as much envious as it was like appreciation how wonderful that that these folks do have this and that they and we have it too by being there but like that they can experience this at a younger age too uh where they can just like feel pride in their bodies and feel like sexy and feel appreciated and feel connected and seeing themselves represented and um we were like sitting back and crying and this was like a like a sex party (laughs) maybe a little out of place it's like I mean it wasn't only that it was also like connection but there was an aspect of that and we were like just emotional <laughs> the old to the trans elders crying in the back. they were probably like what's wrong with them but I did think that it was like a happy emotional thing you know it was like this is so wonderful that this is where we're at that we can like take over fire island and celebrate ourselves and and just be like appreciate and seeing trans bodies everywhere especially on the beach naked like that was transformative it was just like right I don't have to worry there's just people with bodies that look like mine all around and so um, there was an appreciation for it and there was also like a moment where I connected with my other you know older friend and being like we did in some ways like we didn't do all of this but we helped pave the way for some of this and I had never thought about myself like that I don't like think about that at all but I've had people say like folks that are just starting at Cal Lord now like I worked there 20 years ago maybe or something around there like 2005 so less than 20 years and folks will be like oh yeah I I know of you you started this like trans health education program there and we didn't have it before or like you know all of these different things that I think of I felt really like I made a difference you know and that I that even though it was a hard really hard time to make those things happen it's nice to feel like, you know, I helped open some doors, uh, which is really great. And so that way it doesn't, yes, there's a piece of it that's envy, but there's also a piece of like, it feels really nice to be able to see something that you helped make happen um, and see how things have grown beyond you, you know, and, um, and see the kind of like joy that trans people can have. And it's not only about, again, about our trauma and our suffering, which exists. Um, but we also need to have these these joyful times too. I just had myself on mute because my radiator is so loud, but I think it's quite I remember those radiators that I used to have to <laughs> Yeah, I keep <keeps> like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it sounds like it's your joy contains like I don't know that maybe you're able to tap into like a pretty deep well of joy that contains that experience that you've just spoken to that is uniquely different than somebody Mm. who's younger. Um, Is 
yeah, I don't know. I'm inspired by the way you're talking about joy. And if that brings anything else to mind about defining your joy and um, like how that feels, um, if, if there's any other things beyond, you know, being naked on the beach, which sounds so right. joyful, um, incredibly joyful. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to share more on that subject? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking more about it, like, again, because it's been so much not about joy, like, it's been so much about just, like, keeping us alive, right, and, like, connecting us to resources that people need, and, like, getting folks off the street, or, like, connecting people to needle exchanges, like, all the different things where it was more about, like, life or death, which it still is for many folks, of course, um, but, like, I think of, so another job that I had was working at NYU in the gender affirming surgery program. So I was, um, after I did the director of trans health with it, within community healthcare network, I started at the surgery program and it's a very difficult job. Like it's a very, very busy surgical practice where they see trans folks from all over and do every trans gender affirming surgery. And I'm not someone who's like, feels that gender affirming surgery is like the end all be all for our community. I think it's like some people really want and need it. And some people it's not, something they can access or something that they want but there was something about like meeting with trans folks like there's the surgeon who's not trans the whole team who's not trans and then there's myself who is and then meeting the being able to meet with folks and like talk them through preparing for surgery and thinking about all these other factors that it's not just this body part or whatever or your body it's also about like your mind body connection and about like how how are you going to see your body differently? How are you going to take care of it differently? How, what are your relationships and sexual relationships going to look like afterwards? What is your mental health like? Look like all of these different holistic factors um, that I felt like I brought to these visits, which is hard since I didn't have a lot of time in these visits. Um, but afterwards, seeing folks like with sort of gratitude to being able to be in a trusted space where they could talk to another trans person and talk about their body and maybe even say that they weren't happy you know, after surgery, because there were other issues that had nothing to do with their surgery, like their surgery didn't fix their mental health issues, you know, although it can sort of improve some things, or it didn't fix their housing issue, or their relationships, or created more relationship issues, um, but those are experiences where, which were very, it was a very difficult job, but it felt like um, these connections of, like, talking about our bodies and our, the way we exist in the world, even in a very medical setting, um, I got to experience the community's joy in a way, like in and suffering and difficult things. And it made me think, it made me like reflect on my own. Like, what was it like when I had surgery? Like I remember specifically after I had chest surgery and we only had one, <laughs> this was a real like back in my day, we had like two surgeons maybe. Like at that time we didn't, there were not a lot of options. And there was one in particular in San Francisco. And I lived in Boston, so it was a bit of a trip. We all went to the, and they didn't take insurance. I just said this to a patient the other day. The patient was like, oh, I'm really, I'm, I mean, I want to have chest surgery and um, my insurance covers it. I just have to cover a few things, you know, travel there and all of that. And they asked me, you know, a lot of patients ask me about my experience just because it's nice to be with another trans person. And I was like, oh, I got chest surgery 20 years ago and we all had to fundraise for our surgeries. We didn't have insurance coverage. And the person was like, I thought this was always covered. Like, I thought it was just always 
discovered. So it was a moment of being like, a lot of people don't know the own, their own history, like around what we used to do too, right? Like the testosterone spray, like the fun, having fundraising parties for each other. We It was every weekend. We'd have another like surgery fundraiser party and we didn't have money, but we were just helping to support each other to get surgery. Um, but I remember afterwards, I was so excited about surgery. It was really important to me. And then I went into like a little bit of depression because I was very happy with my surgery and I, that needed to happen for me. But then my body looked like a body that I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I felt like my healthcare providers had never seen before. And I felt like the people that maybe I wanted to hook up with or have relationships with, they had never seen before. So it created this whole other aspect of post-surgery that I wasn't prepared for and so I so it connects to the job that I felt like I was doing for people was like preparing them for what's going to happen after surgery that like there might be new issues that come up you might have complete happiness everything's wonderful um and and it helped me reflect on my own experience help people really deal with like the healthcare system what was going to happen and then think back to like I did have joy after surgery, but because I wasn't prepared for what was going to happen afterwards, I ended up having a lot of sadness and like isolation and fear, you know, that I had done this permanent thing that then made it seem like I could only go to certain providers that understood it, or I had to keep explaining myself every time. Um, I just went away from the joy question, but I feel like it's, um, you know, connected. It was like, what are the ways in which I could have experienced joy, but because I wasn't really prepared for or connected to understand all these different aspects, I, I didn't get to have that joyful experience. And now I feel like I'm finding it more like I have a family and I love my child and I, I love our family structure and I love teaching and I love all these other things that I'm finding joy from that I think is like actually more recent, like really reflecting on the ways in which I didn't, or wasn't able to experience joy in the past. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like also there's a moment at which there's like an intersection where you maybe could have experienced joy if someone held space for you to also be like, this is hard and contains sadness. And if that had been okay, you like, what I'm receiving from it is maybe that would be like treating you like a whole person too and also have sadness around and loss. Um, And then that would maybe have helped you like find joy um, and been a really radical space of a certain kind of joy. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. Totally. Yeah. I feel like that's really true. And then coming back to the, Part about how we all have this narrative that we had to tell our therapists or our healthcare providers in order to have access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which it like didn't allow us to be our full authentic selves because we had to say these certain things. Like for example, I had to say to this therapist, like I've known my whole life that I wanted to be a, a boy or a man, which is absolutely not true. Like I actually much later than a lot of I mean, well, there's no judgment about it or comparing, but I just feel like a lot of the narrative we hear is that people knew when they were young, and a lot of people did, certainly, for sure, and a lot of people don't know it when they're young, but I did not till college, which is like, you know, a lot later than the narrative that you often hear about trans people, but I could not say that to the therapist or the healthcare provider, because then they would doubt that I really knew I was trans, 
right? So it's just like, I think there were all these narratives we had to say to get access to things that didn't allow us to be our full self. And then I think impact, I mean, I can speak for myself, definitely impacted me. Like it wasn't, a, it didn't allow me to be present in my body, in my experience, because there was always this way you had to talk about it to have access to things. And I think in some ways it started to really like sink in, like, oh, I can't talk about who I really am or like my real story, you know, because I won't get the healthcare I need or I won't get the connection I need. You know, even within the community that can happen too. Like, you know, mm -hmm. people feeling like this is the way. I remember when I was identifying more as genderqueer, there were definitely like trans men in particular that were like pretty nasty to me, like about genderqueer, not everybody, but just being like, you're, that's not real. Kind of like how, how people talk about, you know, sort of awful narrative around like people identify as bisexual and people feeling like, oh, you have to just pick a side. There was the same sort of thing with being genderqueer. It was like, just decide one gender or the other. And I was like, I thought this was liberatory. Like, I thought we were like having a gender liberation moment by being like, we're genderqueer, we're non-binary, we're this. And then you're telling me I have to identify as a man and I have to get surgery and hormones. And I think that's part of the why, the reason I was pushed against it for so long, because I was like, don't put me in a box. I was already in a box. I like want to, you know, have a more liberatory experience. And so, but then I wonder, I mean, I'm not really sure about this. I feel like it was very hard identifying as genderqueer or like non-binary. It was very hard navigating healthcare. It was very hard explaining my gender. I would always get called she. Like I wanted to be called, I wanted no pronoun or they, but I would always be called she. So I think there was definitely a shift at some point where I was like, maybe I do feel more like a man and maybe I, you know, want these sort of changes in my body. But there are times I wonder, like, if I, you know, if I had more openness and freedom at that time around gender, would I have necessarily taken this route? I'm not entirely sure. Like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with, you know, the sort of changes from testosterone and chest surgery. But it's hard to really, like, go back to that time and say, what if I had known more about, a, you know, existing in all these different kinds of genders in a way that was more open and free? Would I have taken this path? not entirely sure but um but all this to say like i i think that's what's most important in our community that people can feel like there's any path you can take there's any sexuality you can have like that was another thing too because i identified as like queer mm. or a lot of like in particular white older great identified trans men who were not very accepting to me because they were just because i like wanted to be with all different kinds of genders and i also was like more effeminate than that they were got, getting like really into that binary gender which now I'm like right you wanted to pass it makes sense it's like safer experience in life and you felt like to pass you had to be like this asshole man because that's what we learn about masculinity so you you know you took on that role in order to fit in and I get it but I think the ways in which it affected like affected me was tough I was like do I have to be this kind of man because that's not what I want <laughs> Um, and that's when I actually got into, I would do a lot of teaching on trans feminism, which was, you know, going back to the coming out in a feminist sort of circle of, of people and understanding feminism. I started doing trainings on trans feminism and talking about like, one, how cisgender women and feminists, second wave in particular, could be more inclusive and in understanding of trans identities and how actually all of this is connected. And then two, specifically like for trans men that were 
coming out with this misogyny that was very much taught to them that they felt like they had to they had to do um and the straightness too like this very enforced like heterosexuality that came with all these different dynamics so i i really loved doing that because i felt like it brought together all the different feelings about gender and feminism and you know how we don't want to put ourselves in these more you know more rigid boxes and coming out of these boxes right i have no idea what your question was but i really went on a tangent <laughs> i love your tangent <laughs> i was like wait what was the question i have no idea. i think that's what oral history can feel like yeah. <laughs> in the best way <laughs> right <laughs> i'd love to hear you talk more about transfeminism um yeah if would that be something you'd want to talk more about? yeah I've been thinking about it a lot because I do trainings right now for the um, women's women's health nurse practitioners and midwifery departments about their language and how uh, they use women language and they're only referring to cisgender or non-transgender women. So it reminded me of all this work I used to do. It was more when I lived in Boston, so that's like 2002 or so, when I was in that gender and cultural studies program where I would have these different workshops that I did. Like I did for a lot of feminist organizations um, there's one called Australia in New York City that um, that does a lot of funding. Now they're super trans inclusive, but at that time, it was like a lot of second wave feminists who were doing a lot of amazing work for women. That was all for um, you know cisgender women, and their language is really exclusionary for trans people. And so that kind of workshop that I would do, I remember because it was like butcher paper. We didn't do PowerPoints; it was actual like butcher paper and markers, and I put on it. Um, quotes from specifically women of color um, or feminist organizers like Audre Lorde and other folks that were really like liberatory language that I was like hey look this is this this is the feminism that you talk about but like let's actually look at their language as being inclusive of you know black women as being inclusive of you know maybe they didn't say trans people at the time but the way they talked about gender was really inclusive and talking about systems of oppression and like all of this stuff and so it was really cool to see cisgender women or non-transgender women and feminists like shift in their language and understanding. And and what I think I did well at the time was like understanding the barriers because I had been there too. Like I remember there was a time where I was a little like, what is this trans thing? Like it feels like it feels like it's um it threatening to feminism, like before I understood it and also myself felt like a trans person um so I understood the fear behind it with cisgender women with feminists that were like this is going to take away from all of our organizing and our history and or like trans women are trying to co-op women's space or trans men are selling out by becoming men like that was all the language at that time and so I felt like I was able to be like actually let's go back to the roots of feminism and like understand how white you know, feminism has always been exclusive to to trans to I'm sorry to black women and to to women of color, and that hasn't been inclusive. But these are the ways that we can take some of the quotes of these historical organizers and be like, actually, including trans people just enriches the you know feminism and enriches the experience. And it's because of historical feminism that trans people can be whatever gender they want to be because of all of that work. So there's something about affirming the the fear or affirming the history and organizing and saying it's because of all that organizing that we have this space 
Um, and here are the ways that when you're not inclusion, including them, it's going against what feminism is. So I feel like that was like a really exciting workshops I used to do, although hard because I'd be in communities. When was that, were, that? Sorry to interrupt you. When, what year was that? Like 2000, like 2001 to 2005 is when I did a lot of that. Okay. So I'd be a part of like feminist organizations talking about trans inclusion and then be a part of trans spaces to talk about feminism. Cause I feel like a lot of trans folks felt pushed out of feminism, understandably but then they weren't incorporating some of the like really amazing historical work that's been done around gender. So it was like two different pieces that were very different, but that were connected. And so I, I remember I'd make a lot of Venn diagrams of like trans and feminism, you know, and be like, this is where we share. Um, but actually one of my favorite things to do, and it, I just haven't, you know, really been back in it, but some, there, there are other people that talk about trans feminism for sure. But at that time, I didn't really know of people that were bringing that that work together, um, both within feminist non-trans circles and then like bringing feminism to trans, to think about feminism in different ways um, and to understand history. And um, and then I worked at a, I've worked at too many jobs so sometimes I forget them, but there's <laughs> one in New York City in 2007 or eight, um, the Third Way, Third Way Foundation is now called Third Way Fund, but it used to be called Third Way Foundation. Um, and it was like about third wave feminism. And it's interesting because very different now. Like a, there's a trans person who has run the organization. There are tons of trans people involved in it. But when I worked there, which is like 2005, 2006, they felt very threatened by a trans person being involved. They hired me to, to help start their trans, they called it a trans and women funding program. Mm -hmm. They weren't ready for that at the time it was like definitely run by more second wave feminists who felt like they should be inclusive but when i actually came in and said this is what you would need to do to be inclusive to like work on your language they're like no thank you and i was actually fired from there it's the only job i've ever been fired from which is ironic now because it's run by trans people and for trans people and they don't necessarily know that history in fact i just talked to someone who didn't know anything about this history of this foundation who has always been a foundation supporting women's organizing, really amazing uh, work that's being done, but they kind of brought me in to help make some changes, but they weren't ready for those changes, you know? So it was like a really tough, as I was doing these trans feminism workshops, and that was a part of, I think they were drawn to that and they were interested in that, but then like their funders, you know, their board were not on board for that kind of language and, and they felt very threatened. They did feel like, if you change women's language, mm -hmm. or if you're more specific with what you mean by women, so if you're saying like women, do you mean just cisgender women? Do you mean trans women? Do you mean trans folk like assigned female at birth? They were not ready for that question. <laughs> they were just felt like if you change the word women at all, or you're more specific around the, the word women, that you're gonna um, erase all of the organizing and erase. I mean, people did literally say, like, you're erasing women. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. But um, I think people are still, I mean, the work that I'm doing now with, like, women's health nurse practitioners, and they still have the same thing. They don't want to change the language or be more inclusive of the language. And then I'll say things like, okay, well, if you're talking about women's health care, do you want someone like me to be there? So if you're talking about, let's say, like, fertility 
birth control, all of these things. I'm someone that would come in for those services, the pap smear, let's say, but your language doesn't, is not inclusive of me. But if you're going to say women, but then you're not going to be a trans woman, then are you actually think? So all of this stuff, I feel like still exists now, but at that time I was doing more organizing of trying to like bring people together by understanding where the resistance was around that language. And I think it helps me now today in doing that, those, that kind of training because I can start with like, let's just go right into the fears. We're not erasing women. In fact, we're expanding and being more inclusive. And actually this is like, you know, reproductive and, you know, gender care that we all need. So yeah, I think the trans feminism is like a root for a lot of the work that I'm doing now around working on our language and making OBGYN practices more inclusive. And, um, but it's hard. Like that's, even though that was almost 20 years ago, I feel like there's still that same language around that, that people have trouble with. At that time, do you feel like, um, like, where did you look to, like, what examples did you look to, to like, mm get your toolkit and like go into right. those spaces and be like, you know, I don't know. It just sounds like that would be really challenging to like, not really have, I don't like, even though you say it exists today, I think it still is like, yeah, I still find in discourse, like it's not always integrated into the way that yeah. we think of women um, or the way that we behave Right. Um, so I just wonder, like, how did you, did that come from within yourself? Was that, mm. how did you like go to work at that? Yeah. And just like speak your truth. Um, well, I think I had done a lot because I was in women's studies, in my uh, undergraduate, <laughs> I had a lot, I knew a lot about like feminist theory and, um, and I remember I did a lot of projects on like, whose voices are we not hearing? And that was focused more on like um, black women in particular. And that's when I got into like Audre Lorde and other folks that were that, you know, when I look back at, again, it, it wasn't like their language was saying trans, but it just felt like it was more of an understanding how when you say women, they often were only talking, the white organizers were often only talking about white women. So there was something I learned from that that was like, right, the language we're using is not necessarily inclusive. So people would say women, but they didn't mean black women at all. And so that kind of like understanding of that history helped me in being like, this is actually very similar to when we say women, but we're not being inclusive of trans women or we're saying women's services, but we're not being inclusive of the people who have the body parts that you're talking about. Um, and so I think it's really from like specifically black feminist thought and theory that helped me to make that kind of connection. There was also um, an organizer named Emmy Koyami. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name totally right, but I can find her name that she did a lot of, or she also had a um, trainings on trans feminism too. So I learned a little bit from her um, as a trans woman of color who was doing some, un some understanding of like being inclusive to trans women. And I felt like I read some of that that was helpful. I read some of like feminist thought. And then I just kind of like tapped into what are the, what were the fears that I was having? So my first relationship with a trans person before I came out as trans, um, I had these feelings of being like, oh, you're selling out because you want to be a man. Like that language was in me. So I learned it. But I think it helped me to understand how to unlearn it 
for myself and for other people. So I was like, I was there. What was it about? It was about like feeling like you're going to lose something. But our collect our connection to the word woman or organizing around feminism. So how do I speak to that exact fear and also explain that this isn't new? I think that's another thing is like people would feel like this was a new thing that trans people are coming in and trying to take away women's rights. Like that was kind of the narrative. I'm like, this is actually, we've been around forever. And who are the people that are suffering or are at the extremes of discrimination when we talk about gender and race? Like it's trans people, it's specifically trans women of color. Like so if, if it's about that for you, like who's experiencing the most kind of discrimination within gender, it's it's these folks. And like this is how we can be more this kind of adds to our movement and adds to our work. So it was a combination of like different readings and understanding and then me myself being like, where do I fit in here? Here I am, this like women's studies major, but feeling like the language is not inclusive. And now that I'm a healthcare provider, I find it even more powerful because I'm able to say, okay, I come into your your health center. You don't offer me a pregnancy test. You don't have a, even if that's something I should get, you have a women's health template and a men's health template. And then you don't ask me the questions you need to ask me. Or I come in for an HIV test and you ask me if I have sex with men, women, or both. And I say men, and you give me a ton of information as if I'm a cisgender man, my partner is a cisgender man, and we're both trans. So you've given us no information that's relevant to our body. So how do we actually, I think in healthcare, it's even stronger because I can say like, you missed this important service for this person, or you this patient lied to you because they felt like you weren't inclusive, or you did the wrong like STI test because you didn't know what body part they had. Um, so all of it kind of connects. I feel like I bring that transfeminism into healthcare provider work to be like, here are some real specific examples of why you're not providing the care you need to provide to this patient because you haven't asked the right questions and your language is so limited. And I think some ways that helps to kind of like break through to people. That was a lot. <laughs> I thank you. I really enjoyed like listening to all of it. Do you how are you feeling? Do you need any a break or anything like that? I feel like I should get water. Okay. Do you want to get some water? I'm gonna get water. I'll be back. Check what time it is. Yeah, we if you have I we still have a little more time. Um, if you'd like to continue chatting, do you want to sure. come back and like? Yeah, I don't know. Do how much time would be helpful to have? I mean, I could just take a five minute break. Okay, perfect. Five minutes. Okay, then okay. you're gonna see my my head shot for a little while. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you in five. <laughs> Hello. Did that work? Yes. I don't know. I didn't do anything. I didn't press the button. It's strange. Happened. I heard you when you first came back, and then I don't know. I don't know, but I hear you. I so. know nothing about technology. <laughs> You're doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just looking over my questions. Um, I guess something I wanted to ask was... Um, so I feel like, I think I've been thinking about success a little bit. I was actually reading Audre Lorde. Um, I've been re reading more Audre Lorde and she's talking a lot about success and um, this obsession, the way that America is like obsessed with success and mm -hmm. also like dis disillusioned by it. Um, and I, when I 
when I looked you up to interview you, I was like, wow, like you're seem so prolific and you have 20 plus years experience. And like, that's so wonderful because I think we should like celebrate um, trans community. Um, and then at the same time, I was like, he's so successful. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just found this, like, I'm curious if like, there are ways in which you see yourself that differ than the ways that like the community at large maybe perceives you yeah as of how successful successful you are and like if you could just talk about your relationship to success and yeah um I mean that's interesting I feel like have you heard of imposter syndrome I feel that a lot I talk to a lot of people about that I don't in any way it's like interesting to hear anyone say that I'm successful because it's like not a word that I use even though I could see by its definition and like the work that I've done um but I really don't see that in myself at all and I I think I think a lot about it and how people I'm I'm very I'm like I think also being trans like always thinking about how people see me um and I don't I think it came up recently so now I'm part of this this nursing PC program and I'm working uh, with someone at Hunter who has a research team. And one of the people on the research team is an old patient of mine that's no longer a patient of mine. Um, and we have a very nice working relationship. And the person that that I work with was like, oh, he really looks up to you. Like he was like a little intimidated by you because of all the work that you've done and because you were his provider. And I was like, that doesn't even make any sense to me. Like I couldn't wrap my hat my head around it at all because I don't see myself that way and I also think like it doesn't discount the work I've done I think the work that I've done is really important and I also reflect on the fact that the time that I was doing this work like more of the beginning of getting involved in different kinds of trans organizing I was absolutely tokenized in these in these ways that like it I wasn't I was bringing my lived experience which I think is very important I didn't have a lot of the experience needed for these jobs. Now I do, <laughs> but it, like in the beginning, I didn't. And I, it was like, they didn't have anyone trans. And I remember distinctly, like even the application process felt different. Like once I talked, I've, I've from a, you know, as soon as I came out, I've been very openly trans when I felt like it was safe to be. So I think everybody sort of knows me as this like trans professional person. Um, but there are jobs, like my first job at Cal Lord, at that time they didn't have, now they have tons of trans people there, but they didn't really have trans staff members. And so even though I think I was good at my job, I got those jobs because they're like, we need a trans person. Um, and so I think that impacts how successful I feel because I feel like I was sort of brought in to like fill a gap that was needed about we need a trans person, which is important to have someone of lived experience there. And then I gained the experience. Um, but I wonder if it's impacted how I feel like, did I deserve these jobs? Like, did I, I didn't bring the kinds of uh, experience that one would want in, in these jobs. And I ended up, I think, doing them very well. And I think, you know, learning from them and building myself up in these different ways. And, um, but yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about, like the ways in which trans folks are tokenized in different positions and sometimes set up like for failure because they're not given like I have another thing I've been reflecting on is that I never had a mentor I never had a mentor like in any job I've ever had 
or just in in general. I've had friends and community that we've like been there for each other. And we're discovering things together, but we were kind of on the same level. But I never had someone that you know had more experience than me that I was that I could have a relationship with. Maybe someone at a conference I saw, but that actually sat down with me and be like, "Here are the skills that I think are helpful for this organizing or this job, or here's some experience that's helpful." And so that's why I do a lot of that now. I feel like I help prepare trans folks for the experiences that they might have um, in ways that, that I wasn't, that didn't happen for me. So I think I have built on a lot of these this work. And nursing school, I think, is one of the things that I'm like, okay, that that was a lot of work. And that, you know, I went into to have this goal of helping trans folks. But because I've been just moving so much, like having all these jobs, like filling all, you know, keeping myself really busy, I haven't reflected on. Maybe that's what's great about this project too, of like the Transformal History Project, because I don't sit and talk about my work and my life very often, you know? <laughs> um, so I feel like I haven't really reflected on like all of the things that I have done. Um, in the beginning, they very much were like, we need a trans person, we don't care about your experience. But where I am now, like I have had a lot of I have done a lot of work and I think what I've maybe defined as like success is that I've recognized where there's gaps like so my first job at Cal Nord which I you know had no healthcare experience and I got this job to do like healthcare training luckily I figured it out but I noticed that there was a gap like there was trans folks coming in for hormones and they knew nothing about hormones which was like my own experience you know with that testosterone spray I'm like, what if we created a visit that was just a counseling and education visit for trans people, hopefully also led by trans folks when we have enough staff members, but it was just me at the time. And we just sit with them and say, like, here's what to expect, because the medical providers don't have time for that, or they don't have the experience. Um, so I think these things that I think are successful are like seeing where there's a gap, like at Community Healthcare Network, I was like, nobody, there's not a trans health program. What if we started that? Um but to me, I never thought of it at the time as successful. I was just like, what would I need as a patient? What does the community need? What can I do to help make that happen? And I experienced so many um, barriers along the way and so many like really toxic work environments that I never really reflected on doing these things well or like having success because I was around a lot of coworkers that weren't supportive, you know, that, that didn't have gratitude for the work that I because the big thing that's coming up for me like I don't do this work to get gratitude but I've worked with a lot of people that don't give that sort of support mentorship gratitude anything really um and they're just like you're trans go do this trans thing and so it's um really in thinking back like yeah there those things didn't exist before or they existed and I helped to build on them and that is really great. And in some places they haven't con continued and in some places they really have. Um, and sometimes people don't really know the history of it at all. Like I walked into Cal Nord actually not too long ago because there's some people I still know there. And a ton of people just had no clue who I was. And I worked there for nine years at like <laughs> a really intense time of the of the, comp the organization where I helped like build. I just no one had any clue. And I was like, you know, it's all right. Like, I feel like I did the work I did and I didn't do it to like have a placard of myself, <laughs> but it is also interesting that nobody here knows me. Um, so that's, that's, that's been interesting. So I think when people see the work that I've done, 
that was really successful, but it never felt that way to me. It felt like it was like, I want to create things I didn't have. I don't know how to do it. And I'm just figuring it out along the way. And now I'm like, those are, that is difficult for trans folks in positions that nobody gives them the support or mentorship that they need. And then they don't know if they're doing it successfully. Like, I feel like that's the thing. Like, I didn't know that I was doing any of these jobs well, whatever that might mean, because I didn't have any mentor or any evaluation, really, which is a problem that was like, hey, here's where you're, you're doing great here. You need some improvement here. I was just like, let me make this up as I go along and hopefully things will work out. And I think that's why it's hard for me to even see myself as having success in this field. Yeah. And I guess I, that word too, for me is like, um, that maybe that is like not something even to work towards. Like Mm. I, I guess I more meant that like, it's that like America seems really obsessed with success and, um, siren one sec. You know, I don't hear it weirdly. Okay, cool. Um, That's one thing about moving out of New York City. We don't really have a lot of sirens. You're like, I don't hear any. <laughs> yeah, I can't even hear it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like just that maybe that's actually not, that's not something really to aspire to. Um, right. And um, a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of like what I've been reading in Audre Lorde's writings and um, kind of like marching by a drum of like feeling mm-hmm. and like yeah. self-guidance because of like what a lack of resource given to you and mm. um, I, I wonder yeah if you could speak to like I don't know, emotion or feeling like it feels like that's maybe Mm. could be a driver versus success. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also once I'm in the nursing field, like that is a whole other discussion of like success because it's just like the ways in which nurses are completely burnt out and like expected to take on way more than they can handle. Um, is really difficult and I think like the the emo that's the other thing about my the work that I've done or the organizing that I've done that I've been thinking about that has been very emotion led and that has also created a lot of difficulty in these workplaces that's why a lot of these workplaces have been really toxic is that like I'm coming from this emotional place of like I'm creating things that I never had that I want for the community that we're like this is life or death for a lot of people And they're just like, I'm at my nine to five and I don't care, you know, (laughs) so sort of like working with, you know, people that are like, yeah, they care about the work, but it doesn't come from the same lived experience and like need for this community and this healthcare. So they could cut a program, you know, and be like, we had to cut this program and it doesn't mean anything. And then I'm like, you just cut the program that is essential to, you know, a lot of our livelihoods, like things like that, that have happened that it's hard. I, I can't imagine, I've just been doing this for so long that every job I've had has had, besides some hospital work I've done, like has been, had a trans component to it, a trans health component. I can't imagine doing any other work, but also it's incredibly emotionally draining to be doing work that is based on your own identity. 
and like fighting for access for your own community. So it is always emotion led and that has caused a lot of problems. Like I find it hard to talk to people like a, a boss or a supervisor that doesn't really get why this is so emotional. Or sometimes I feel like I can't talk about something without getting emotional when I'm like, emotions aren't necessarily valued in these spaces. Like you have to talk in a way that's like, you know, more logical and people can understand you, especially if it's to funders or to board members, but it's emotional and it's hard. And um, yeah, so I think, but I, but I think you're right about this like notion of what is success that is, can be, can be really challenging depending on how you define it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's also maybe recognizing this, like, like seeing someone like you online in America kind of wanting to, like, pat themselves on the back or something, mm. like, reminds me of, like, this sort of tokenizing yeah. um, of a trans person and also being like, we did it, like, we accept right. you and wanting to congratulate themselves. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I guess... I maybe already asked you this, but I was just curious if like, if you feel like there's a way that you don't, that you, that you don't feel seen, that you would like to be seen, mm -hmm. um, or maybe, or maybe there is a space that you do feel really seen. And that's like, um, yeah, a contrast. Um, mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been thinking that like a lot of these places I've worked at, not only am I fighting for trans inclusion or trans healthcare or whatever it might be, but I'm also have gotten like really inappropriate questions from coworkers uh, mm -hmm. who are just really curious, you know, and because I put myself out there so much as someone who teaches about this and I do tell personal stories and, you know, I'll share like one or two personal stories when I do a training or a workshop because I think it helps people connect around it. But I think that sort of, makes people feel like they can ask me about my body or about my relationship or like just like or words they're having trouble with like you know people will literally process with me that they're having trouble with someone's pronouns and I'm like why why are you talking to me about this like what do you what validation do you want me to give to you about how you're messing up on this person's pronouns who's trans and you should just get it together and so I think that that, that is something I've just become accustomed to so I'm I'm often as much as I try to be like charming and connect with people and teach people and be like okay well you're going to ask me these questions I'd rather take it on than this other person who maybe can't you know who this would be more traumatizing for but then I can't be my full authentic self at, at these workplaces where I'm kind of constantly on guard like at some point I'm going to get some inappropriate question so I feel like I can't you know, totally relax, you know, or, or just like take a breath and not, and feel like a connection and feel like I can take a break from this constant teaching about trans things, you know, trans related, even if it's like a very well-intentioned person who just wants to tell me about their random trans cousin and ask me if I know them, that literally happens to me all the time. And it'll be like someone in California and I'll start to say like, oh, we don't all know each other. And then sometimes I do know that person and I don't want to say it. <laughs> like, I don't want you to just ask a trans person if they know another trans person, even though we do know each other. <laughs> so I think those, those that's like most of my workplaces is 
that experience. Um, so when I do feel like I can have this joy or like be myself is usually in, I mean, I think it's like trans spaces also of a certain age too. I mean, I certainly feel comfortable and, uh, and great in all ages, but I just think there's a way in which there's a way we can kind of connect when we've been through similar experiences. And like there's um, like different health centers that I'm researching about now in my PhD program about like that are by and for trans folks and what that experience is like is like a just, it's like you can, in some ways I think in the body ways, like I have all this shoulder and back pain part of aging but also part of just being on edge all the time and like it's like up here all the time so I think of it as like the place when I can put my shoulders down and like mm -hmm. just kind of breathe like take deeper breaths as opposed to really shallow breaths which is I'm learning now is like how I've been breathing like constantly getting ready for the next inappropriate question or uncomfortable moment so in the times where I can just like let my shoulders down and take deep breaths they're rare places. I mean, with my family, with my friends, with uh, some family members, not all, and uh, with, you know, in Fire Island or in a, like, trans or queer space or with, like, really great allies that I feel like have really, they can't, they get it, you know? Um, some of the organizing now that I'm doing, like, I'm doing a lot of um, Jewish anti-Zionist organizing for Palestine, or, which has been amazing and those are spaces even if they're not trans specific spaces I feel like people are just get it like they've made the connections or anti-racist organizing or like Black Lives Matter stuff like where people already are thinking about all these forms of repression and those are places that I feel like I can be myself because they're not going to have usually not going to have a bad reaction to finding out I'm trans or um that's been interesting to organize in worlds that are not, that don't know me as trans. Most of my organizing world is like everyone knows who I am, but doing this different kind of organizing where people don't know me. Now there's like a new feeling I have, which I, which is very new for me, which is, oh, they don't know I'm trans. Like I'm just walking into a space where people are like, this isn't Nathan, the trans person. Everyone knows me in New York city in these, in these specific circles as trans. And so and it's just been a new experience of organizing with people that that don't necessarily know this about me. But then I'm like, when will it come up? And should I talk about it right away? <laughs> so I that's a very new experience for me. I haven't felt it since. Well, I guess yeah. I haven't. I don't know when I felt it because when I started like before I was passing and I was more non-binarily genderqueer identified. I never people just called me she all the time. And then I started looking like this and passing more. But I was very outwardly you know out about being trans and everything I did so everyone knew and so now I'm in this new organizing world where they don't necessarily know and there are moments where it's nice we're not to talk about it and then there are other moments of anxiety of like this is gonna someone just assume that I'm like a cis man and I don't want to be put into that world ever yeah <laughs> I don't want to erase like where I've everything I've gone through yeah right and like be a part I don't know, it's happened sometimes. Like there are moments where, you know, we all come out and we, if we feel safe or not. So there's some moments where I don't feel safe to talk about it. And I've been like grouped into this, this male world. And it is, it does erase who I am. And it does, there's a part of it that's like a little easy for a minute, right? But then the next minute is like, oh God, there's going to be something uncomfortable that's said where we have a shared experience of growing up socialized as men or 
you're going to talk about your penis or something. And I assume that I have the same. So I just think that's going to be uncomfortable. So then my shoulders go back up, you know? Mm -hmm. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your, like specifically like your experience of being Jewish and your anti-Zionist organizing, if that's something you want to talk about. Um, it's yeah. come up like a couple of times, I feel like, like in this conversation, but we haven't really given it much space. Um, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was, I, when I first moved to New York, actually the first friends I met were part of an organization that doesn't exist anymore. It's called um, Jews Against the Occupation or JADO. There's still a lot of people from the JADO world that are now a part of Jewish Voice for Peace, which people know a little bit more about. Um, but when I first moved to New York, that's like the people I, like Jewish organizing, where it felt really beautiful because it was like organizing around the things about Judaism that we love, like the holidays, the commitment to social justice. The, like there's just really great things about Judaism that I really love and we connect and I'm really connected about it. And then speaking out against um, the treatment of Palestinians and just um, Zionism in general. Like I was raised somewhat Zionist. My family is having a very hard time in this particular moment. It's caused a lot of divisions in the family. Um, but I did a program when I lived in Boston. I uh, met someone who ran this program called Birthright Unplugged, which is a program that takes um, mostly American Jews to areas of Palestine to show us the things we didn't learn about. Like when I went to Hebrew school, you know, all I learned about was Israel and I never learned about Palestinians. Like it was just as if they didn't exist. And so I started to learn more about that. And then this program just brought us to actually see people and meet people and like see what the actual experience was like. And I'll never forget, I came back to my family. I had a PowerPoint presentation. I had like pictures of what is it like? And they just couldn't hear it. Like, I think the, and this is, obviously we could talk about this for a long time, but just sort of the brainwashing and indoctrination specifically of Jewish folks around this, around this conflict and around this, this region. So that was another way that I was like pushed away from my family. Cause I was like, not only am I trans and queer and you don't get that, but also I'm anti-Zionist and I'm supporting, you know, Palestinians and speaking out against injustice and um, you don't get that either. So uh, it's now, you know, given everything that's happening right now in the current events, like it's come back and I've been really involved in um, Jewish Voice for Peace, which I think is a really extraordinary organization um, that historic, that understands the history of all these different movements. So I was a part of two big actions. One was at Grand Central, um, where it was an action that was based on a historical action of ACT UP, which I thought was so amazing that ACT UP had done this like action in Grand Central, just raising awareness around AIDS and HIV and funding for it. Um, they dropped banners. And so Jewish Voice for Peace did basically the same thing, but about Palestine and um, speaking out against, you know, the, the killing of Palestinians and everything that's happening right now. And it felt so beautiful to be a part of this, primarily Jewish, although it was also like multiracial and um, different people of different religious backgrounds, standing up and saying like, this is not okay. This is not in our, you know, not in our name, not in our, with our money from the U.S., like funding it. Um, and it is, it's interesting. It's like very queer, but it's, it wasn't 
called to be queer, which is another thing that like kind of brings my whole life together. It's like, yeah, the people that usually get all of these different things are usually queer because <laughs> it's like we we already have a step outside of this kind of like cis heteronormative world. So we're already not all of us for sure, but many of us are already seeing these connections. So I remember at Grand Central looking around and being like, oh, we all, the organizing was amazing. It was just like different groups only knew certain things. So then we were flooding Grand Central with our, you know, Jews um, for ceasefire and not in our name shirts. But I look around and I was like, this is all queer. Like all of us that are in Grand Central right now are some kind of queer, even though this wasn't a, it's not a queer organization. It just so happens that the people that are doing this organizing are also queer. And that made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> so it was really beautiful. And just yesterday, I was a part of a, we shut down the Manhattan Bridge. And it was amazing. Like it, and it was a, well, there was a family component. So this is really beautiful too, where I can bring my child, like my partner and I, and a bunch of families with their kids in a safe part of the Manhattan Bridge, not sitting on the street, but being a part of the family part with a security team that was devoted just to the families. And everyone brought like kid snacks and uh, all these different, you know, things, chants and chalk and coloring pages. So you had that part and then you had the folks that were like willing to get arrested and were sitting on the actual bridge and um, dropping banners and everything. And it's been, it's like re-inspired me again. Like I did this organizing back in 2000 and now I feel like it's connecting us back to each other and it's like a little reunion so these people that started Jews Against Occupation in 20 years ago are the same people that are now kind of involved in this. But here we are, like some of us with kids, some of us, you know, in different relationships and everything. So it's been emotional. Like, it's been really, really emotional. It's been really inspiring. It's also, like, so clearly connected to other movements, like, old, like older folks that were a part of civil rights movements are also part of. Jewish Voice for Peace and other organizing around the country and to see all these people in other parts of the country doing it and also to see people I know like I'm not used to the news being people I know you know organizing like this is getting on the news this is getting in the media and I'll be like that's my best friend you know up there in the on the New York Times and um I just right it's interesting the interview is happening now because I'm feeling so inspired by yesterday's action so it's it's really amazing and it feels like this really inclusive space because it's so queer that we kind of get all of these things that we can stand up against injustice and say we just also happen to be queer and a lot of trans folks and um it has caused a lot of I'm currently in a, a um, difficult relationship with my brother around this like he's just having a really hard time with it and I write novels of emails, which is not the best use of my time. I have like two jobs. I'm in school and I have a child and I'm spending hours writing emails to my brother, <laughs> which is tough. Um, but yeah, it's caused some family dynamics, which is um, difficult, but I just feel really, really inspired um, and privileged to be a part of this organizing, which I think is really making a difference. Um, and, and I think connects me back to this organizing that I used to do. Being a parent and moving to Stanford, I've been like a little disconnected from some of the organizing. So it's kind of brought me back in. Wow. Yeah, I saw that action. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's so inspiring. 
Um, yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. How was your, um, how was your child's response to the action? How did they experience it? It's been, it's been really, really tough to, I mean, I think there's so many uh, grownups that don't understand this. So it's like to try to explain it to a six-year-old. Yeah. And in particular, the part about being Jewish, like I, I want, she's raised in a household, like my partner's um, not Jewish, but like may as well be, because he just grew up in Brooklyn around <laughs> all the Jews and he knows more about Judaism than I do sometimes. Um, but we celebrate, you know, Christmas and Hanukkah, like we celebrate a lot of different holidays. Um, and I want her to have this pride in being Jewish like I do, but it's a really difficult time to have that pride and because there's so many Jewish people that don't understand this. And in, in particular, in my own family, who aren't standing up against this, who are like justifying and standing with Israel in a way that is very destructive and seems to have no analysis or awareness of anything. And so she'll ask, I mean, six-year-olds, they can ask some questions where you're like, damn, that's a, that's like a therapy question. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to need some time. But she, I was trying to describe her. It's more like we use the language around like fairness and justice. Like we don't get into the real specifics, but like we stand up for fairness. We stand up for justice. We don't want people to be killed. Like we don't want to steal land from people. Like we just kind of talk about it like that. But then I sort of also had to explain why are we wearing shirts that say like, not in my name or Jews against each other, which is complicated to explain. And so I was sort of explaining how some Jewish people feel like the safety of Israel and they can't understand or comprehend anything that could be negative about Israel. And so she sits with it for a while and then she's like, well, if some Jewish people are doing these bad things or not nice things, then why are we Jewish? And I was like, oh God that's intense because I have my own shame right about like Jewish people at this time because I feel like really angry at a lot of Jewish people in my family or in community um so how do I explain to her these like nuances of all of this and so it's been a little tough um but she has some good friends in in New York City and in Brooklyn who are also part of like organizing families and their parents are getting arrested at these 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 um actions and so she has friends to talk to but they're more there not so much here like it's been interesting to say I don't know if you can talk about this in school like I don't know if you can tell like they'll be like what did you do this weekend I mean it could happen today I thought about it just when I took her to the bus like they're gonna say what did you do over your Thanksgiving weekend and she's gonna be excited to share that she went to this action and she likes to chant like free Palestine but I'm like I don't know how your school is going to react to that or other students and uh, other kids in the school um so yeah there's I have a lot of thoughts about this because I'm still trying to figure it out like how do you talk to a kid about it in a way that they understand because of course she's like why would anyone want to kill children right like what like to wrap your mind around that as a six-year-old and we talked to her a lot about like police brutality too. I mean, she's also like an interracial kid. So she's going to, her experience in the world is going to be very different. But then she got really scared of the police, which is understandable. But then I'm like, maybe she, as a six-year-old, you can't really, I don't have these thoughts well, well worked out because I'm still trying to figure out how does a kid, like child development is so interesting. Like, how do you explain this? And she's already also dealing with having, 
of dealing with, but like her family structure is different than the kids she goes to school with. And we had to have this conversation. It's kind of related just about what you can talk about in privacy and public about she's really proud that her dad carried her, right? That she like her dad gave birth to her, right? But like there's a lot of kids that are not gonna get that. Um, <laughs> and that she has two dads in general that people don't totally get. You know, people will ask her, why don't you have a mom? And she did tell a kid on the playground once that I asked, said something about, you know, why don't you have a mom? And and she said, oh, I have two dads and my dad gave birth to me. And they were, the kid was like, nope. <laughs> it was like, you're wrong. <laughs> like, that's not possible. So you're wrong. So then we had to kind of have a conversation like, we're very proud of this as a family, but unfortunately, like not everybody gets it. And some things we can't always, which felt heartbreaking to have mm -hmm. that conversation because I'm like I want you to go out into the world and be proud of your family and not have to feel shame so it does connect to also this you know Palestine organizing because it feels like I want her to be proud of this but I also want her to be safe and you know there's space some spaces where you can't talk or you should be able to talk about it but it could be dangerous to talk about yeah either way it sounds like generative territory for her to be raised in yeah and around and like maybe she, and definitely she'll have these memories and right like maybe it'll over time like it'll sink in as yeah. she ages and do you find like I don't know hearing you talk I was like are there like storybooks, like bedtime storybooks that you feel like yeah. you turn to? Or are you like, we have to just like create our own stories or like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. We think about this a lot with like family structures, like it all connects, but like thinking about books, like we got a lot of these books and posters that like black is beautiful, like books that focus more on black kids. That, Cause I grew up with like all books about white kids. And then one day she's like, why are all my books about black people? Like, why are there no white people in my books? And I was like, I hadn't considered that she doesn't know, she hasn't had the experience enough to know of like racism and how it's worked so that she doesn't understand why is she getting all these books that are about black people? But it kind of connects to like, then we're now, we have, a, we're trying to get books that show more different family structures. And there's not a lot, like even there's a few there's certainly not any that I know of that are about a trans man giving birth to a kid who's in a relationship with another trans man. <laughs> like, I haven't found that book yet. I guess maybe we have to write it. Uh, but so all of the books are very much, you know, about a mom and a dad or like maybe they'll have somewhat different family structures. Maybe they'll have two dads or two moms, but definitely they're not trans. So finding books or like reading books and saying, okay, our family's a little different. Like, trying to have those conversations and then I just or I just ordered a bunch of books about Palestine because I think part of this is the way in which this con Palestinians in particular have been dehumanized is like we don't hear their stories even just like a simple kid story like not necessarily a story that's like let me tell you about the conflict but just like here's a story about a Palestinian kid like I never I never learned that I didn't even know that they existed so I think that's something I've been doing is ordering um books about Palestinian children and families just that um, don't necessarily go into the whole conflict and history but just show people as real people so that's um, that's something I've been doing and 
I just think like, what are the things that I wasn't exposed to, or I had to learn later, or I had to unlearn, like, I'm trying to do like, as much things that we're both, my partner and I are trying to do as much things as we can to, so that she doesn't have to unlearn a lot of things, but she still goes to school, and she still watches TV, you know, so it's going to be there, but I do think, like you were saying, those memories are gonna, like, she didn't totally understand the action, but, um, had a good time you know <laughs> she's like writing in chalk and hearing chants and um being in community around it and I think that that is something that will stick with her yeah I think so let's hope <laughs> I think you should we should write this book <laughs> uh-huh. about two trans dads <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it sounds like yeah, a really good know. book I think it's gonna be a good book there's some books about gender that are pretty good, but I have yet to find specifically a book about a trans dad being pregnant. Like that's a very specific book. <laughs> yeah, I know. If I come across it, I will definitely. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> I will definitely let you know. Like it connects to the things we've been talking about, like seeing yourself represented. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. Like even though she feels love in this family, and like she knows she's well loved, she she has other kids that don't have the same family structure she's got books that don't really talk about it um so it's tough but, but I think connecting with it it's also impacts like where we want to live like mm-hmm. do we want to stay here or do we want to go I mean, these are like life decisions I need to make but do we want to go to places where they're gonna she's gonna see more people like our family it's just that those places are usually the most unaffordable places to live. Like New York City and San Francisco, which certainly people exist elsewhere, but it just feels like how do you also have a good quality of life and have your kid and yourself be around community and feel like, you know, you're represented. It's not easy. No, yeah, you bring you raise like a lot of really good points. Um I one other thing I wanted to ask you, um, and then like we can slowly find our way into closing, um, is like about, I have this friend who really believes in like queer representation in like rural America. Like mm. they just really feel like it's really important to them because they grew up in a rural place and didn't yeah. have that. And so have made this life choice to live somewhere rural um, and come up against a lot of challenges, but for Mm -hmm. them, they just feel like it's really important because maybe there's, there's a kid out there that really needs to see that flag. (laughs) And if that had been there when they were a kid, they, it would have meant everything to them. And like, I don't know I also have been thinking it's been making me think about that and hearing about this move to Stanford and not that like Stanford is like America is a very big country and like right. yeah there's a lot of probably scarier places to be in but yeah. I guess yeah like I wonder um or I think about your your child going into school and maybe like maybe there'll be a process of unlearning, but maybe she'll also be able to like teach, have these like little ways in which she teaches other kids. And like, I wonder if you have any experience, like positive um, experiences living in a somewhat more rural place Mm -hmm. and um, seeing it making an impact in a place that doesn't 
have that much visibility around you. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a way in which we, we as in my partner and I are like, we're having a better quality of life that's impacting our ability to be, to, to have self-care and to be good parents. Like we're just running around so much in New York city and like on the subways forever and on top of people and just, it was a lot like, and I love it there and I go back and visit and, um, there are times I think about living there again, but I just feel like um, having space and quiet and calm is so important. And that, so I think it has impacted us to be able to like reflect, you know, I feel like there's like this constant moving, moving, moving in New York. Like I actually still, I still do it here. I walk really fast and I'm in no rush. And all these people around me are like, what's wrong with you? Like literally I had a random stranger be like, slow down. Like I just, because it's like how you walk in New York, whether you're in a rush or not, you're just like navigating around people and here you're not doing that. So it's like allowed me to slow down. And I think that's been really important, especially as someone who's like getting older and um, it, I haven't slowed down with all my jobs. I still have too many jobs, but I think slowing down just in life and having an easier time has really impacted me and my partner as like trans people that have had not easy times in life. And now we're just able to like, we got an inflatable hot tub, you know, we have a backyard, like we have a little, we can make a fire outside. <laughs> there are little things that just are quite nice. <laughs> um, so that's been really great. In fact, all our New York City friends come to visit because they're like, this is like an Airbnb vacation experience where they have room, they have their own bed. I feel like New York City people are so used to sleeping on people's couches, you know? <laughs> So it's sort of like people have space and, and this, Stanford has a mix of, it is an urban city. Like there is a pretty big city here and there is a, like a country area and a suburban area. So it's a combination of all of those things. Um, I do think that, like I was saying about the neighbors and how they bake us cookies and take care of our dogs. And there's a genuine, like a way in which people do look out for each other in these neighborhoods that I didn't have as much. Although some areas of Brooklyn have that too. Uh, but people just are like, hey, we've been here for years. So we're going to help take care of each other. So I do like that. Um, you lose a little bit of community in some of the politics, but you gain some other things that don't really exist there. And and also the one or two people I do meet, I like connect with in a way that in New York City I wouldn't. Like I met a queer person. I'm like, we're going to be friends. Let's get each other's numbers. I'm not going to do that in New York City and like, we're all, you know, there's so many of us, but it's like a genuinely sweet relationship. Also, there's a lot of people from Brooklyn here, like a ton of people from Brooklyn moved here. So that's interesting too, like connecting with people that are from the same area. Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess I would Nobody not. knows anything about that. Yeah, no, people don't know about it. It's like a little known secret. And there's a queer uh, healthcare center and there's a gay bar. I mean, there's one, but it's still like kind of cute because the gay bar here it's such a mix. Like it's everybody because you have one. So it's like everybody comes different ages, races, like, uh, you know, all different kinds of people where I feel like in New York City, you have your bars for different things. And there's so many of them. Uh, so there's things I appreciate about it. And the fact that we can so easily get back and forth to New York City is really important. Yeah, that sounds really nice. That's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Is there, yeah, is there anything else that 
is has anything come to mind that you wanted that you would like to talk about that we haven't that we haven't talked about we talked about a lot of stuff <laughs> I can't think of anything we haven't talked probably I'll think of it something when we're not talking anymore of something I forgot to say but I feel like we covered a lot yeah we did cover a lot I somehow you answered like all of my questions <laughs> <laughs> like, like I knew about them beforehand but I didn't yeah that's how I felt <laughs> I was like oh yep there we go <laughs> and like and you did it in such a nice like nuanced way um without even being prompted so um but yeah I guess I can see if there's like anything else that I guess there was one there was one moment you were talking about being in New York City and like going in like where you were you were at the nursing school and it wasn't like always the easiest environment for you to be at but you were also going to like it sounded like underground trans parties or like you were finding yourself in spaces that were like yeah like some social spaces that you were finding yeah. yourself in does that ring a bell yeah it was an interesting time to be in these two completely different worlds of nursing which was super conservative and I was the only trans person and it was quite transphobic and then like the Brooklyn queer trans scene of just like when I could because I was also in nursing school so I had to like study but um actual like queer trans dance parties and um a lot of places that I don't think they even exist anymore but like it would be it would be really cool because it's like your friends are the DJs and it's like all of the community together and and I think that it was a time before I was the community's healthcare provider that was very different and it just I didn't have to navigate those relationships I could just have a great time and um and it was really fun like I just I'm very thankful for that time or those pockets of like queer trans party we had more house parties then I mean there were there were clubs too but like there were actual house parties I haven't been to a house party in so long where we just you know hang out with each other at people's houses and connect and and meet people and it was an exciting time of, of like coming into a trans space that was more radical and was also having fun like you know we also knew we were going through hard times but we were like dance it off, you know, and really connect with each other um, when we could. And that did change a lot when I, when I started working more in the community. And it didn't mean I couldn't be a part of these spaces. Like I still went to things, but just that that relationship changed. But yeah, it was a really interesting time to be in this nursing world and in this queer trans party world. They did not come together at all. Yeah. Do you remember like any of the names of the spaces that you were in or like how you how you like found each other if it was a house party or any like memories yeah. from the, those times um there was a I uh, just talked about this place because it's actually where my partner and I first got together but there was a there was a um club it doesn't exist anymore it's called the hole and it was in lower east side and it's where the cock is now which is ironic or funny or whatever the word is for the fact that the cock literally moved into the place where the hole was uh, but so that's like I think it's second and second avenue and second street so Lower East side it was like this dirty like really nasty club like it was just disgusting like everything was sticky there it was 
disgusting, but it was super queer. <laughs> like where everybody went, they one night had $10 all you could drink, which makes no sense. I don't know how they made any money, but for $10 on like a Thursday night or something, you could just drink all night for $10. It was, it was dangerous, uh, but it was very, very queer. And I think it was when I first learned like what queer really was. Like, I feel like I identify as queer, but I hadn't seen it in a space. And it was just super, super queer. And like trans folks or queer folks who weren't trans, but just also very messy because people were so drunk. <laughs> but just like a really wonderful place to connect with each other and see people. And it was one of those spaces where once you walked, you had, you at least knew one person there and you just, it was easy to just get involved in different groups of people and, it was great. There was also another place in Brooklyn that we always made fun of, but now I'm like, I wish that place still existed. Mm-hmm. And now I'm totally forgetting. It was like South Park Slope. It's not there anymore. And it, it'll come to me, not in the moment, but it will come to me or I'll ask someone else who hasn't been there. Mm-hmm. And it was also another queer space that was really cool. Um, really like very open and accepting and it was like it felt like really great to be queer in that kind of space um also had two floors with different dance parties so you just meet people and then um i cannot believe that i can't remember the name of this i'm gonna have to do homework and get back to you on the name of it because it's gonna bother me (laughs) but (laughs) you can totally get back to me i will now i'm really curious and i will have to edit the transcript we'll be like (laughs) Remember that like that. There were spaces like that that existed. Um and then just random, you know, Brooklyn house parties where mm-hmm. you feel like you knew someone who knew someone and I'm sure those things still exist. I'm just not plugged into them anymore. Uh but it was just a really nice way people really were like appreciative of that space too. Um and really like connected to each other and um it's interesting how those spaces changed when I became a healthcare provider because then I'll never forget. I went back to some of those parties and I would be asked like, can you get me an appointment at Cal Lord? You know, it'd be like, I'm drinking or I'm just mm-hmm. like having a fun time. But people saw me as access to a difficult system that's hard to get into. And so I'd get like, I would literally have people be like, I have this rash. Can I show it to you? <laughs> like at a party. And I was at like Reese Beach, which I think, I mean, that's its own wonderful that was a wonderful space. That's also where I connected with people and parties is like being at Reese in this like just dirty area of the beach where all the queer trans people went and it was just beautiful and amazing. Pre being a healthcare provider and then post being a healthcare provider, I would literally get people showing me their rashes on the beach and be like, can you get me an ointment for this? <laughs> or like, can you get me into this, you know, can you get me a date for surgery when I was working in surgery? So those spaces were amazing, but became very different when I was like, some, which I was like, this is why I went into this work so I could help people get those services. But also I want to be able to like, just relax on a beach or at a party and not be asked about an appointment. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> or a rash. There was always a rash. And I was like, I don't want to see that. <laughs> you had a very unique position. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for like remembering. It's just, that was like one thing that I was like, oh, that's, I was like really curious about that. Um, yeah. 
about that that hole or that the hole literally but like the that... hole was amazing and also when I was talking earlier about how our surgeries weren't covered by insurance that was another place we met people is we everyone had these fundraising parties I mean certainly some people just absolutely could not afford it it was I mean these surgeries were thousands of dollars so it wasn't accessible to everyone but it would be like a little trans fundraising party every weekend so that was another way that we supported each other and also met each other in helping each other get surgery and it was also so beautiful because it's like we didn't have money and we were raising money for our own surgeries but we would still give things I remember we I helped do a party actually for my partner's chest surgery where it was like um what was it called when you had it was like people brought things like a skillshare kind of thing resource for this. yeah it was like people would would be like here if for twenty dollars I'll do like let's say I lead meditation services or yoga or something or um, if you pay thirty dollars you know everyone had these different skills and so they would just kind of put um, at the party like what skill they could offer and people would put how much money they would pay for it and that would and then that person would give that money fundraise for the surgery so it was a beautiful time of learning how we can take care of each other in systems that were creating all these barriers like we had couldn't get surgeries no one would take insurance. We just had to have literally like cash for like a lot of cash, like a lot of money. Um, so some people it didn't work for, but but it also was a way that we connected with each other and we're like, what skills or experiences do we have? Like someone could, you know, cook really well and be like, I'll cook you dinner tonight if you donate like $50 to this, whatever. So that was a beautiful space where people met each other and connected and also supported each other hmm. yeah that sounds really beautiful yeah and like unique to the time and I don't totally. know why I'm also forgetting it but like a swap or like a yeah that was a word I think like a swap or yeah like, I don't know could you pay for it we'll remember this word at some point <laughs> I think because we've been talking for three hours my brain yeah. is like, <laughs> like I don't have any words anymore also, huh? it's so dark outside yeah it, that's what also seems like we've been talking for days <laughs> the sun like has like a complete... whole other day <laughs> the sun like set on your face <laughs> yeah I know I had to put a different light on because you wouldn't really see me anymore <laughs> yeah it was really beautiful though <laughs> <laughs>